What makes human beings truly unique is our ability to tap into a creative imagination, to create a heaven from hell or a hell from heaven, or to suspend the disbelief for a moment so that we can unleash just a different self and show up like we know that we can, but we sometimes block it because of, again, shame, trauma, um, imposter syndrome, or any one of a number of things. That's Todd Herman, this week on The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. So what if I told you that the secret to success, well, maybe not the secret, but perhaps a secret, just might be having a secret identity. <laughs> now, I know that sounds a little ridiculous, perhaps a little bit cheesy, but before you engage in that knee-jerk reaction, what if I added to this idea by also telling you that this secret identity that you're empowered to come up with on your own, whatever you conjure for yourself, might actually, when the dust settles, be a more accurate representation of who you really are. Think about that for a second. That's what we're gonna explore today. My name is Rich Roll, I'm your host. Settle in, get comfortable, because today is a doozy. If you enjoyed my podcast with James Clear a little while back, he's the guy who authored a book called Atomic Habits. That was RRP 401. It was all about habit and behavior change. It was a very popular episode. If you did dig that, then I suspect you are very much going to enjoy today's conversation with Todd Herman, as it is very much in the same vein. Todd is a high-performance coach who has spent the last two decades working with professional and Olympic athletes, entrepreneurs, leaders, and executives to decode and unlock peak performance, peak performance at the highest level. He is also the author of a brand new book that just came out. It's called The Alter Ego Effect, The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life. And that book, obviously, as I just mentioned, explores this idea, this idea of the heroic self within. Uh, and that provides the focus of today's conversation. Todd has also been featured on the Today Show, Sky Business News, Inc. Magazine, and CBC National News. And there is plenty more I want to say about Todd and the conversation to come before we get into it. But first, a quick little celebratory announcement, because today, my friends, today marks the 200th episode that my audio engineer slash producer slash behind the scenes do everything I ask you to do guy, Jason Camiolo, has worked on. He has now completed work on 200 episodes. Time flies, I'm telling you, because I feel like we just started working together. Jason, you have done an incredible job on the show. I could not have taken this program to the place it finds itself here today. And I just wanted to publicly acknowledge all the amazing work that you have done and continue to do to make this show the best that it can be. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm extremely grateful to have your support. And to all of you out there in audience land, please do me a solid favor. Hit Jason up on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. He is at Jason Camiolo on all those platforms and let him know how much you appreciate all the work that he puts into the show every single week.
We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, 
then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years. And I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Okay, Todd Herman. Let me say this up front. In general... I think it's fair to say, I'm pretty leery of pop self-help, self-improvement books and programs. And in fact, I would go so far as to say I harbor a pretty healthy distrust and at times distaste for all of it. And overall, I think my skepticism is grounded and appropriate, but it can also at times get in the way of my best interest. And I think today's guest is a good example of that because My knee jerk at first was "Hmm, alter ego effect. I'm not so sure about this, but two things turned me. One is that Todd is very good friends with my friend, Jonathan Fields, who I think is just one of the best and most amazing people on the planet. And two, I met up with Todd when I was in New York City a few weeks back, and I was just super impressed with him, with his work, with his approach to life, and realized that I'm the one who's got something to learn here because this guy has a lot to offer, a lot to teach me. Uh, I checked out his new book, which I very much enjoyed, and I thought this guy would make for a great podcast guest. So here we are. This is a conversation about actualizing peak performance. It's about realizing human potential and how to overcome the barriers and blocks that hamstring prevent and block us, often repeatedly, or in some cases with some people, continually from being the best, most expressed version of ourselves. We track this idea of the alter ego through some successful case study individuals who have used this strategy to their advantage. And we explore the why behind Todd's work and how confronting and owning a rather severe trauma from his childhood helped him overcome the feelings of guilt and shame that I think burden millions of victims all over the world. Uh, It's a very powerful story, but Also, just a heads up that it is quite intense, not terribly graphic, but perhaps best to make sure the little ones are out of earshot for at least that portion of the conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed this talk. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And uh, you know what? It's all happening now. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've connected him with another friend of mine to help him with like meditation stuff in New York City, uh-huh. Emily Fletcher. Have you ever heard of Emily? She uh, runs. Name sounds familiar. I don't know her. She though. has a book coming out right away too. Stress less, accomplish more. She's fantastic. Former like um, Broadway actress and singer, whatever. Um, just an amazing spirit person. She's just amazing. Yeah, um, cool. I think and, I have heard of her. I've heard of that. Yeah, book, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's coming out in a, 
it comes out like two weeks after mine. Mm. Anyways, um, if you ever do something with them, because they've, a, I mean, that's a massive network. We work is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm hooked up with some folks yeah. out here on, on in that space. So you know, I, yeah. it's just something to explore. But yeah. in any event, dude, this is about you. <laughs> nice to have you here today. Thank you for having uh, me. I got a text from Jonathan Fields several weeks ago, and he's like, "I got a guy who I think you're gonna <laughs> dig." My good buddy Todd. He's on your page. He's all about peak performance and working with athletes and executives to you know unlock the best version of themselves. Yeah, um, you guys should definitely hook up. And I was like, yeah, sounds sounds like my kind of guy. Yeah, I was in New York last week and we connected, and here we are, man. Yeah, this is how fast it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not usually this fast. Like normally, it's like months and months, if not years, to like. Kind yeah. of pin down a guest for the pod, but this was fast tracked. Yeah, that's why you have good friends like Jonathan yeah. to just squeeze the grape faster. <laughs> well, anybody that Jonathan would refer to me, I would welcome with open arms because I love that yeah. man. I love yeah. everything that he's about. And if he's saying uh, that we should connect, then I trust that wholeheartedly. Thankful for that. Yeah. yeah. So good to have you here today. Very yeah. exciting times for you. You mm-hmm. got this book coming out very soon. Definitely. The alter ego effect, which is great. Um, I just got my copy the other day, so I will admit that I'm not done reading it yet, but yeah. I'm, a, I'm about 25% into it mm-hmm. uh, at this point. And I'm really digging it, dude. It's a cool idea. Um, so let's work our way up to yep. the ideas in the book though. Yep. Um, you're somebody who has created a career and you've been doing this for a long time. 97. Um, since 90s, and you're a young dude. Yeah, well, I'm 43. I started uh-huh. started super young working with right. you know, young athletes, but uh, yeah. Working with athletes, Olympic athletes, professional athletes, and mm-hmm. now business executives yep. and all manner of people to help them become unblocked and mm-hmm. unleash their, the, the the, their peak performances, yeah, right? Just whatever, whatever genius that they have, yeah. You know, remove the remove the emergency break on their performance. Like I say, if uh-huh. we can release it just ten percent, then we can. That means we can release it ten percent more and keep on going. What are the biggest blocks that you come across in working with these athletes? Like, what are the common things that most people um, struggle with in terms of you yeah. know, kind of taking their talent and their expertise to the next level? Ah, uh, there are a lot. Um, there are w- one one large one that doesn't get talked about enough is definitely trauma, something from their past mm-hmm. that has uh, turned into a little bit of a a demon that can stop them from seeing what their possibility is for themselves. Definitely, I mean, of the hundreds and hundreds of like more elite athletes that I've worked with. of them I've referred off to get help with a therapist or someone else on just helping them unblock some of that past trauma stuff. 82% Uh, is very specific. Yeah, well, I mean- quantified this. Well, I'm a data guy. I I really Uh track stuff a lot. And so, you know, is 82% the exact number? No, but that's about the right number. It's Uh definitely, um, if if I had 10 of them in front of me, I know for a fact, eight of them have gone. Or I've referred eight of them off because again, yeah. like I'm, I'm helping with people with mental game strategies and peak performance strategies, which is all about helping them to move forward and compete even five percent better tomorrow than they did today, or one percent. Like we're just looking for marginal improvements because when you stack them all up, it creates a, a big difference. Of course. And um, 
unlike some people who want to take what they have as a skill set and think they can solve everyone's problems with it. I don't. I stayed very much in my lane. And the moment I've poked and found, because you know, I'm crawling around between the six inches of their ears trying to find, hey, what's that thing that's that pebble in their shoe that's kind of stopping them or, you know, trying to give them new strategies. And when you're building up such high levels of trust with people, you end up just having really raw and honest conversations with people. Mm-hmm. And um, the moment I found that, I was like, whoa, I am not a skilled therapist. That's not my game. And so I'm gonna definitely refer you. refer you off. However, that doesn't mean that that person needs to go to the sidelines and quit on whatever it is they're doing. Right. How often is, is that trauma um, something that the athlete is consciously aware of? Very, very little. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something, um, and I can speak to it very honestly because it was the thing that I dealt with. I had a, a very rough experience when I was a young. young yeah, well, let's talk. Let's yeah. talk about that. I yeah. mean, you you kind of made passing reference to that when we met in New York. Yeah. Um, and uh, I went back and looked at your Facebook post where you you know wrote eloquently about this experience that you yeah. had. Yeah. So walk walk me through that. Yeah. Um, uh, well, as a little bit of background, I grew up on a big farm and ranch outside of um, Medicine Hat, Alberta, which is south of Calgary, which, you know, for people uh-huh. who aren't familiar with Canada at all, it's um, uh, on, in, the, uh, in the prairie provinces and um, kind of middle of nowhere is where I grew up. But- um, Medicine Hat. Medicine Hat, yeah, got its name because uh, back when, you know, the, you know, English and uh, were sort of colonizing everything, they found a, a Native American tribe and when they fled, they swam across the river and the medicine man lost his hat. And so that, that, settle, that settlement was oh named Medicine God. Hat. Yeah. That makes me like lose faith in humanity. Like really, it's that dumb? It's that, That's how, it's that simple, yeah. It's yeah. that simple. Yeah, Canada is fantastic for great names for, uh, for cities uh-huh. um, and towns. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I grew up in uh, you know farm family and I would uh, always long to be around people all the time because you're very much isolated. So I would, constantly ask when summertime hit that I wanted to go to whatever church camp was available. So if there was a Catholic camp this weekend, I'd be a Catholic. And if there was a Presbyterian one next weekend, I'd be, it didn't matter to me. I just wanted to go and be around people. Um, and when I was 12, I went off to a church camp and unfortunately had an experience where two men over the course of a couple of days uh, sexually assaulted me. And uh, after that, when I was coming home, you know, it just robs you. I don't have to go into the details about right. it. But, but, it ro- but multiple occasions of yeah. abuse then? Yeah. Wow. And um, kind of the worst part about it is just the uh, the systematic nature with which they develop that trust with you and then break you down kind of thing. And that's been something that I held on to for a really, really, really long time by myself. Uh, but I came home and I was very honest with the Facebook post you're kind of referring to was kind of, which is very new. I just you know, said it to the mm-hmm. world for the first time. In fact, right before I posted that, I read it to my parents and my siblings for the first time. Uh, so is that the read. first instance of you addressing this, yeah. even with people that you care about in your life? No, it wasn't the first instance. The first instance was um, about 16 months before where basically I just kind of hit a breaking point where I was going through a, a major business um, lawsuit. Um, you know, this this book, anyone who has written a book knows the challenges of getting your thoughts down on paper, especially mm-hmm. when you're a first time author like myself. And um, that 
stress had just brought me to kind of a breaking point. I'm a, I'm a new, newish dad. I mean, I've got three little kids and um, my, my wife had gone through a pretty bad last pregnancy with our, with our youngest boy. And um, yeah, so it just, all of a sudden it all came to a head and um, came But prior to, to that, it was decades of compartmentalization. Three decades. And, and trying to just say, this was in the past, I'm moving forward and pretend ignoring that it didn't it. happen. Yeah, ignoring it and suppressing it. And you even forget a lot of the details about it. And then when you start getting help with it, there's all these things that you know get revealed that have shaped your behavior that you would have never guessed. You know, for example, I've been I've been known, and it's been on my social media stuff for a long time, kind of as a bit of a uh, a needle to myself. But that I'm a massive root beer aficionado, love root beer, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't until going through um, you know and getting help on this about five months ago. Even I was talking to the uh, psychiatrist that I was working with or, and working with. And it all of a sudden it came to it that the very last drink that I had before the incident happened was a, was a root beer. And so for my entire life, I've basically been trying to go back to that little kid. and Prior to, prior to the, the incident. Incidents. And that's my kind of, my last known memory of just being, you know, wow. an innocent kid kind of thing. So it was a sort of progressive uh, inability to manage your life that culminated in a crisis flashpoint in which you realized you had to confront this and deal with it. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the big, one of the big tipping points was I was picking up my, you know, I live in New York City now and uh, I was picking up my two little daughters from preschool. And as I put, uh, I put Sophie into the, the, the carriage and then I picked up Molly, my oldest one, who's, you know, four at the time to put her in. And as I did, she put her hand up to my cheek and she said, uh, daddy, are you happy? And I said, yeah, I'm happy. And she said, oh, cause you've been yelling at us a lot lately and it's making us sad. And I just lost it right there, broke down because now all of a sudden I had been confronted with this internal reality, which was manifesting now into just me hurting my kids in small ways. But did and- you have an awareness that that was being fueled or driven by this childhood trauma? No, no, it wasn't that. Uh, I mean, I, I there was just this, all of, there's only so long that you can hold on to that emotion before it just bubbles up into just sort of poor behavior, you know, uh-huh. whether it's anger or rage and um, just the culmination of so many different events coming together at the exact same time, just, you know, was turning me into a massively stressed out person. Uh, and this is coming from someone who has practiced meditation since, you know, before it was very cool. <laughs> it was before yeah. yoga was cool. Um, and I have a lot of the tools and the toolkit to, to do it. But then after a certain pound, um, point in time, you know, some people, maybe they can keep it bottled up, but when you're constantly striving and still achieving, um, it's really hard to keep on running with the 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 line in the, in the red area of your RPMs. Yeah, well, and that just compounds the shame. So yeah. you're starting from a baseline uh, point of harboring a tremendous amount of shame because yeah. on some level, I would imagine you feel responsible for this trauma happening to yeah. begin with yeah. and so shamed by it that you can't talk about it or share it with anybody, yeah. which keeps you stuck in it. Yeah. And then you become this high performance coach and this parent who yeah. this meditator, this person who has all these tools and these practices, and you're still um, handicapped by this, which makes you feel even more disempowered. Yeah. Which just completely um, you know, accelerates the vicious cycle. Yeah. And I mean, it, you you brought up two big things, two, two major emotions that 
shape people's performance and how they operate in life are shame and guilt. It's just, they're just insidious how much they prevent people from, you know, I talk about the idea of the heroic self that's, that's really sitting inside of all of us that is waiting to get unlocked. Um, and, you know, even for me, cause you know, I have worked with some extremely successful people over the course of my career, but I've always stayed in the periphery. I've never, you know, tried to pursue like a personal brand name for Todd Herman. And then once I started getting into this, really kind of clearing this out of my system, it was just so evident and became evident that it was because I, I didn't want someone to fundamentally find out that this mm -hmm. happened to me at some point in time, um, which kind of got to the the purpose of the post, I actually was sitting down, it was New Year's Eve night, December 31st, and um, was about to kind of map out my year, just some ideas or um, thoughts about what I, how I wanted the year to go, which I'd already done, but I was just kind of fine tuning it. And all of a sudden this is the stuff that came out because I just fundamentally felt like I really wanted 2019 to be something very different for myself. And um, I wanted to let that go for the final time and not carry it with me because it's not my fault. I didn't do it to myself. And um, yeah, and it, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it, my point wasn't to help other people with it. It was to really help myself with it. But it, um, I've actually talked to seven different people who've reached out to me privately since then about how close they were to suicide as well mm. and had conversations. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people who read that who have had similar experiences and you can't move forward until you clean house yeah. and you will hold on to that shame for as long as possible until it becomes yeah. no longer tenable yeah. and you know we don't need to get into the graphic details of this story if people want to read it you yeah. can go to your facebook page yeah. and read it but there's an aspect of the story that's so horrific that involves um this event being publicly, you know, yeah. shared in a way that I can't imagine the fear and the shame that would surround that aspect of it. Yeah. So it's just it's so horrible. And it takes tremendous courage to own that even though intellectually we all understand and nobody would dispute the fact that of course you're not to blame here mm -hmm. and there's, yeah. there's nothing to do with you. Yeah. Um to hold that private for so long uh to harbor that amount of repressed emotion, um, it's amazing that your life didn't fray at the edges sooner or mm -hmm. more substantially than it did. Well, I mean, it definitely, I, mean, it was, I think it was constantly being frayed at the edges, I guess, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, I don't know. There's some part of that kind of human will to survive and, and not make it I, I always had this feeling inside that there was something bigger waiting for me if I could actually face this kind of, um, this demon. And, you know, it's still unfolding for me, I guess. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, I, I talk about in that post that there was many times where I attempted suicide with it. And, you know, there's nothing that's, that I that you would think would maybe jar you to get some help more than when you're sitting on a hospital bed after taking three bottles of pills and sucking back charcoal, which is what's used to, you know, try to take away the mm -hmm. effects of those drugs. And it's, it's hard stuff to choke down um, that you would maybe reach out for help, but that even then uh, still, still wouldn't do it. Cause that you would kind of just that idea of the fact that, you know, I was constantly getting trolled and still do get trolled today with people reaching out with <clears throat> gifts 
uh, because my, that incident was videotaped and it's a very popular video in the pedophile community, apparently. And um, yeah, people troll me to try to like extort money from me and, <sighs> and um, so just, you know, be not that kind. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so. It's horrific, you know, yeah. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Yeah. Um, but, but you seem good. Yeah. You well, know, and like, the, yeah. it, there's more to it than, hey, I'm going to write a Facebook post. Like, yeah. this is a public acknowledgement of it in a way of yeah. saying that, you know, I, the way I refer to it is shame can't survive the light. And yeah. you, you refer to the Martin Luther King quote, mm -hmm. you know, something about, uh, you know, you can't, you can't resolve darkness with darkness. Yeah. Um, that's a starting point. I'm yeah. sure there's a lot that then went into you processing this so that mm -hmm. you can own it and talk about it and share it and and move forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely felt felt good to get it out, right? Uh -huh. Like it's not it's cuz that whole fear of people finding out in a like I'd much rather just say it my way and own the story and um yeah, it's not something that, cause that just that constant fear of it gonna be the thing that defines me for the rest of my life, even if someone did find out and then saying, you know what, if someone wants to define me with that story, then, you know, go ahead. I can't control everybody and how they perceive me. So, um, cause I know I'm a lot more than that. Yeah. What about the two guys? They're both, they're both gone. They are. Yeah, they're both dead. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but just to kind of wrap this back around to kind of where we started with this is um, so many people hold on, like so many athletes and, or people that are just high performers have hold, held on to um, an idea of something that happened that's hard for them as the thing that's helped to drive them, right? That they, they think that if they let that thing go, that they're going to lose their edge. Mm -hmm. And it's, and and it just, it does, it keeps them operating at an emotional RPM that's just way higher than they need to. And I think the one thing that did allow me to be very good at what I did early on was because of my inc the incident that happened to me. I'm just extraordinarily highly empathetic and probably at a wavelength where I can kind of um, connect with people that maybe, maybe, maybe in some way I, I attracted a lot of the more you know, challenging hurt people. And then maybe that's why my 80% is, is higher than, I don't know what other people's ratios are, but I mean, we all know that every human being has experienced trauma and, you know, trauma is yeah. experienced by every human being, whether they're in a car accident, that can still get experienced as trauma, you know, and that's just, now it's the degree of it and the narrative that gets handed to it. But, um, you know, it's the one thing that definitely allowed me to um, connect with people and probably build trust at a high level very mm -hmm. quickly with mm -hmm. them. Yeah. yeah, and beyond that, it's fascinating that you pursued this career trajectory mm -hmm. that was almost a quest to answer and resolve these questions for yourself mm -hmm. as much as developing, you know, an awareness and a toolbox to help others. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I think we all do this as human yeah. beings on some level. Yeah, my when I when I shared this with a friend of mine, he said, "Wow." now you make so much sense to me, you know, because you would tell the origin story of why you got into like mental toughness training. And it was always like a veneer kind of thing. Like your origin story didn't sound as great as other people's origin stories. And that's because if I actually told someone my origin story, I was going to be revealing too much for myself anyway. But he's like, now it makes so much sense. I mean, you got into it just out of survival. It's a survival story. 100%. Yeah. 100%. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. 
I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. 
Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. On that uh, tip about high-performing athletes over-revving their RPMs yeah. and uh, developing an attachment to the idea that that's necessary for them to maintain a certain level of performance. Mm-hmm. That is something that I not only agree with wholeheartedly, it's something that I suffer from and have always <laughs> suffered from. And I have made this commitment in 2019 to shift that paradigm, which yeah. I have to tell you yeah. has been quite uncomfortable. Yeah. And the results have yet to be told yeah. on this. So. Trust me, I'm going to harness you to make this all about me and my problem. With your, I have I have the opportunity to Let's be coached yeah. by you today. Let's do it. <laughs> don't think I'm not going to take advantage of that, right? Well, we don't have to do that right now, but um, but I think you know it's an interesting way into kind of what you do and how you mm-hmm. do it to evaluate. Hey, here's what's working. Here's what's not working. And I'm somebody who you know I know what it's like to perform at a high level. I also have a fair amount of Mm self-awareness about what my Achilles heels are. Yeah. Um, But I also have this incredible inability to do anything about it because of these attachments that I have or superstitions or OCD behaviors around what it would mean to let go of a certain behavior pattern and try something different. Yeah, well, I mean, whether I've said it on stages or I've said it just with people privately, you know, when you take a look at a company, there's a CEO, there's a CMO, there's a chief operating officer, and all those three people will sit inside the company and they can operate at a high level inside the company. But there is a role nowadays that's coming to kind of fruition, which is a chief performance officer. And I've always thought of myself that way. And the thing about a chief performance officer is it is impossible for a performance, anyone who's trying to help someone perform to be inside the bottle with you. You know, mm-hmm. it's the classic, you can't read the label when you're inside the bottle. And a performance officer or someone who's just helping with performance has to by nature be sitting outside of you to be able to get context, not be so emotionally engaged. That's why we all need coaches so much because right. that coach can you know, reflect back to you um, more easily than you can because you're so wrapped up in the narrative of who you are and this is how I am and all that kind of, uh, this is the way I've always done it. And, you know, unless you become that person who can be coachable, which is a very difficult thing for people to allow. It's it's actually quite amazing how many people are not willing to be coachable. I was one of those people who was not a coachable person until I had an amazing coach break that paradigm for mm-hmm. me. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait. Yeah, life becomes so much easier when you can lean on other smarter relationships than your mm-hmm. own. So, um, Well, it requires a little bit of self-esteem and... Um, and trust, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Uh, and I think um, receptivity to the idea that whatever story you're telling yourself about yourself mm-hmm. uh, is probably flawed. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So the story that I tell, well, first of all, the idea of a chief performance officer, I think is great. It reminds me of the Maggie Siff character in Billions, who's, do you watch that show? Like yes. she's she's basically, that's what she does. That's a role, she's yeah. a shrink, but she's there to get the best out of all of these employees, yeah. right? And they go in and they they drop their secrets on her and their fears and all of that. And she helps them figure yeah. all that stuff out. I think every company should have somebody like that. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And, and so you kind of do this individually for people. Individually, I mean, I've, yeah. done, it, I've done it with companies as well, right. of course, too. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah. <laughs> what? Well, I just, it's just been such, I mean, it's such an interesting conversation for me anyways, yeah. for, like that I'm hearing about, because it's just, I would never would have thought I'd, I'd get to the point where I'm on a podcast talking about my my history like this and not be breaking down into a puddle on the floor. Kind oh, of you're, thing, right? Right? Well, yeah. you, 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 you're more than welcome to cry. <laughs> Other people have yeah. on the show. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how I can get you there. <laughs> if we want to make that a priority, <laughs> yeah. I can work my way towards that. Yeah, let's let's see how it happens oh, organically. All right. Um, <laughs> So the story that that I've always told myself is, I'm not the smartest, I'm not the most talented athlete, mm. but if I have a talent or a superpower, it is uh, an ability to outwork the guy next to me, mm -hmm. uh, a higher um, capacity to suffer mm -hmm. and to outlast. Um, and I will leverage that to bridge the talent deficit gap and get on top. Yeah. And what that requires is a certain level of um, commitment that is probably deeper than the other person, uh, control issues, perfectionism, mm -hmm. and that leads into some OCD around habits. You know, when yeah. it's when you're trying to make everything perfect, everything has to be just so. I've got to control it. Yeah. Uh, and the minute that I relinquish any control or I say, look, it doesn't have to be perfect because I've taken care of this is the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the context of kind of what I do now, I've grown this enterprise to a certain point doing things a certain way and it's been successful. Yeah. But to get to the next level, I have to, I can't do things the way that I always have. Mm -hmm. I have to build teams. I have to empower people around me. I have to let go of certain things. And I can't pay attention to the details as deeply as I'm used to because I have other things that are vying for my attention that are equally as important. Yeah. And this is terrifying for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so what is, but what's the consternation around that? Like, what's the what's the really challenging part of that for you? The challenging part is if I let people in, and I release my uh, my stronghold on the reins, that it's all going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's this uh, one of my favorite sports I ever worked with, and still work with, is equestrian, because it's one of the few sports where you have um, a partner that is a mirror reflection of what's going on inside of you. And, you know, when you think about when you're out there running, you know, someone can look at your face or your body language and they could see, oh, he's focused or he's like, whatever. But when you're on a horse, a hor that's why horses are used in therapy for, you know, um, you know people who've got autism or, or any one of a manner of many PTSD. When you're on a horse, and if you're feeling anxious and if you're feeling stressed inside, your horse is gonna get jittery. Yeah, it and will reflect that. It will reflect it immediately. And and even to down to, you know, if you if you are even holding the reins of a horse lightly, but you're still feeling stressed, those reins will pass that emotion through to the horse. And so that's why they were always, if I could get an equestrian rider to like shift their stress levels into a calm state, then, you know, I can kind of do any, I can work with anybody. Uh -huh. They're such a great challenging group to work with. Um, and so 
it's that, you know, you're talking about like releasing that and the more stress that you're holding on to, to kind of grip the neck of your company or your business or your enterprise, whatever, it's all it's doing is um, creating a stressful environment, not only for you to be operating in, but ever, for everyone else to be operating in. And then uh, it, there is no op opportunity for your business to be supple. Supple is just a word I love to go to because it's, uh, it's just, well, I just, I'm a fan of the word. <laughs> well, but here's the, the other part of the, the story, kind of the backdrop here. Yeah. And, and hopefully it answers this question about the stress level. And that is that I tell myself that if I'm not, because I have this capacity to suffer, that if I haven't really mined that mm -hmm. with respect to a project, whether it's athletic or professional, um, that I haven't really given my all, that mm -hmm. I have not shown up for it to the extent that I'm capable. So yeah. I have to create an environment in which it's, I create pain for myself. Yeah. Because if I don't experience that on a visceral level, when I'm trying to birth something into the world, mm -hmm. then I haven't really, um, I haven't, I, you know, I haven't really shown up for it in the way that I could. And the end result will not be as good as I know that it can be. Yeah. So that of course creates that stress, but on some level I'm addicted to that stress because I feel like I need to feel that in order to validate the effort. Yeah. And so, but when you're going through that, is there is there a part of you that enjoys that process at all? In a perverse way, yeah, yeah in a perverse way. It feels very uncomfortable to adopt a different mindset or, or, or perspective on this, which is to say, what if it was easy, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is kind of a thing that people are saying, what if it was easy? What if you could navigate this with grace and ease and a lack of stress and presence of mind, what would that feel like? Mm -hmm. And one might say, well, that would feel great. But for me, that's terrifying because that means that I am poking a hole in that story yeah. that I need to suffer to create something of value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you think about your values, what are some of the things that you value the most? In my personal life, you mean? Yeah, in like, you know, whether it's the world or or especially like how you see yourself, like what how what what does rich role value? I value uh, my relationships. I value uh, integrity. Mm -hmm. I value um, striving to align the public version of myself with the private version, like being an integrated person. Mm -hmm. um, and I value uh, a life of service, giving back yeah. is super important to me. Yeah. And I'm sure that we can go on and, and on. Family and family and like, you know, yeah. there's plenty of other things. I mean, I could go down the line. Yeah, and I mean, in the short time that I've got to know you, I would say that all those things definitely come to the surface as well. Uh, the reason I ask that though is there is, I talk about it in the book in chapter three when I'm talking about this kind of idea of the field of play and the identity that how it gets created, that there is a, um, we have our core self, which is just this place of like pure possibility. And, um, you know, one of the, the big ideas behind the alter ego effect is that one of the great things that makes human beings truly unique on this planet uh, it's not that we can love because other animals 
display that. Now, I'm not discounting the power of it. I'm just saying it's not the thing that makes us really unique. What makes human beings truly unique is our ability uh, to tap into a creative imagination, to create a heaven from hell or a hell from heaven, or to um, uh, you know suspend the disbelief for a moment so that we can unleash just a different self and show up like we know that we can, but we sometimes block it because of, again, shame, trauma, mm -hmm. um, imposter syndrome, or any one of a number of things. And so in order for me to kind of explain this out for people, I had to come up with some sort of model to help kind of just reflect back how we end up showing up in performance on whatever field of play. And performance is like, as a parent, it's as a friend, it's in work, it's whatever. And, and I talk about how just beyond the, the inside core of, you know, that self that's inside of all of us, it's just like kind of pure potentiality. And it's not about getting woo-woo on it, but it's like, that, that is, it's there. I've seen it happen with people, just completely transformative results happen in a flash because they connect with that idea that, no, like there, there is a creative self inside of me that mm -hmm. I can decide and be with intention, have that show up for me. Um, but right outside that layer, is this layer that I call core drivers. And core drivers are often things that ha happen underneath the surface for people and shape their behavior and they don't realize that it's shaping. An example is we can, a, a core driver is us saying, um, you know, oh, I'm an American or I'm a Canadian. Mm -hmm. That's a core driver. We end up taking on these kind of, these, um, these behaviors and these value sets and these beliefs based on, on that. Because now it's, it's something that's a bigger part of who we are. It's not just me. It's actually something that's larger that I'm connected to. It could be the tribe of people that we hang out with. It could be um, the religion that you're a part of. It could be um, the it could be the group like you've got. I've worked with U.S. Marines and Navy SEALs, and you know, there's a different there's a there's a um, a code that they operate under. Sure. And one of the other ones is values. Um, th that's why values are so important. And we just I just I'll look in at them with people. And then see, well, is that person honoring that value or have they attached a narrative to that value that's just, that's not quite right. That's actually having, it causing them to rev the engine more than it needs to. Um, and, you know, it's not like I discovered anything, you know, radically different about the values that you have, yeah. but, um, you know, just your idea that in order for you, in order for success for, in, order, in order for you to point at success, suffering needs to be there is definitely not true. That's mm -hmm. a belief that you own. Um, and intellectually, I agree with you and I understand that, yeah. but there's a gap between that understanding and actually doing anything about it. Yeah. And this is something I've had self-awareness around for a long time, but it's only now that I've decided like I'm actually going to attempt to do this differently. And today's a perfect example because I have a show going up tonight. Mm -hmm. Normally I would have put in a huge number of hours of like getting all involved in the minutia of it. And I have, haven't even looked at it yet. Yeah. And after this show, I'm gonna have to get into it and I'm gonna get it up. But, uh, but my relationship to it is different. And that is where the discomfort is coming from, but I have to create those new neural pathways. Mm -hmm and I have to get on the other side of it. Okay, tonight it will post. Over the next couple of days, I'll see how it's received and responded to. And of course, that will have no bearing on like the, 
the amount of pain that I'm going to experience <laughs> later today getting it published, right? I understand yeah. that. It's just walking that walk as opposed to um, the theoretical understanding of it. Yeah. I think an, a useful idea for people to, to get engaged with too is around the idea of all, all of us are born in with just classic intrinsic motivators, the things that intrinsically motivate us without you know, any outside effect needed. Uh, things like growth. Growth is a natural intrinsic motivator. That's why the moment that a young child who might be involved in sport doesn't see themselves constantly progressing and growing, they will become bored with it. Mm -hmm. So growth is an intrinsic motivator. Uh, another one is learning, which is different from growing. Learning is an intellectual activity. And when we're learning, we stay engaged with something as well. And then you got things like um, adventure, another one, that and exploration. Exploring, that's why young uh, infants are constantly reaching out with their hands and exploring the world around them. They're trying to figure it out, map the world. But curiosity is another one that's lost with many people. And I think it's something that for people who are, uh, and I mean, I can be a control freak too. That's why I know this quite mm -hmm. well. Um, and, but curiosity is another powerful intrinsic motivator to tap into where it's like, you know, you had said, um, I'm willing to. And there's a big difference between the word interested and committed. It's the thing I'm always testing. I did, uh, I had an opportunity to do something with the United States Navy, a big project opportunity. And when I was talking to the, uh, the head of that project, I just asked him flat out, are you interested in this project being successful or are you committed to it? Because it's two vastly different outcomes for mm -hmm. us. I mean, you have to be willing to give up a lot of the paradigms that you operate with because it'll just run counter to exactly how we're gonna be implementing this. And he thought about it for a moment. And um, because most people that are in corporate or high positions are very risk averse, he said, we're probably yeah. very interested in this. Um, and I said, well, then I'm not the right person for you because I, I get to choose who I get to work with. But for you, it's like you're saying willing, but you know, what if you became curious about committing to this for three months Mm -hmm. This just attitude of, I am going to give up responsibility to um, someone else or some software system or whatever it is that's going to be doing this and see how it goes, see how it would shape my life and shape my impact if I was free to do other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm on board with that. You yeah. know, I'm, I, am, I actually am committed to yeah. that. And I have thought about that 90 day window and, and giving myself that uh, amount of time before making any judgment calls about the success or failure of, yeah. the, of this new experiment. And I'm confident that it will be successful and it will free up time for me to focus on other things that I wanna be doing. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. you know, I don't wanna get too in the weeds on like my specific <laughs> stuff here, but, no um, but I hear what you're saying. And I think there is a huge difference between interested and committed, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of people um, don't spend enough time parsing that. Yeah. You know, they say, oh yeah, I wanna lose weight or I wanna do, it's like, well, do you really? Yeah. You know, what actions are you taking that would demonstrate, um, you know, the level of that interest or commitment? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the difference is there's so many people who, you know, they, they think that the scoreboard is how many books they've purchased, um, you know, which is, which is fine. But, you know, the difference between someone who's interested in a book and committed to the book is the person who's interested will 
flip through the book and let's say it's a nonfiction book. They'll flip through the book and they'll look at the exercise and think, okay, well, I'm going to come back to that. No, that's, that's a neat idea. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that too. And they get to the book and they go into the book and they go, that's a, that's a really good idea. And they share with other people, oh, this, you got to try this. This is a great book. You should, you should read it too. That's someone who is interested in the idea. Someone who's committed will instead get to the end of chapter one and sit with that idea or actually answer the questions because the intent is just massively different. And that's kind of one of the, the, the spirit, that's the spirit of that's lying inside the book too. It's just this power of intentionality. Like mm -hmm. that this has nothing to do with being fake or inauthentic at all. Because fake and inauthentic is someone whose motivation is to deceive others. Because that's what, if, like if I was here and I was, you know, trying to put on a face so I could deceive you in some way, right. then that's being inauthentic. But, you know, nothing wears on people more than when you get to the end of your day and your head hits the pillow and you think to yourself, why didn't I say that? Why didn't I do it differently? You know, why didn't I raise my hand and speak up when that person said something demeaning to my coworker or mm -hmm. whatever? You know, that in that moment, you didn't live authentically because you didn't honor the values of who you are. And so just the idea that we have in the book is sometimes, you know, I call them like it's that phone booth moment, that moment when, you know, uh, an impact, a moment of impact truly is about to happen. And sometimes we have whatever blocks that we've got, we can tap into the power of uh, the characteristics and traits of someone or something else that can draw out our best self because we can suspend the disbelief of, of you know, what we can and cannot do. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Well, let's... 
unpack this whole idea of the alter ego. But before that, I just wanted to comment on something you said just prior to that, which is this sense of accomplishment that we get or we have by buying a bunch of books, mm-hmm. right? Like the entire self-help industry, let's be honest, is built upon that human yeah. impulse yeah. of tricking ourselves into thinking we've actually done something because we read a book. Yeah. It, it gratifies us on some level and actually um, lures us into this sense that, that, that we've moved our lives forward because yeah. we've intellectualized some idea, but that's very different from actually implementing any of the wisdom in any of these books. I mean, do we really need however many thousands of self-help books that are written every year? It's no. like, it's crazy, right? Like yeah. most of these, it's just, they're, you know, this, they're, there are core ideas that are great truths, mm-hmm. um, but the trick is in the utilization, the leveraging of them, yeah. right? And the kind of key idea in your book is this idea of the alter ego, which we should just define before we dive into it. I mean, mm-hmm. you've already kind of talked a little bit about it, but yeah. essentially what you're saying is that um, in order to overcome certain blocks um, that stand between ourselves and, and the best version of who we are or can be, there is wisdom in this practice of adopting almost a superhero personality of yeah. your own choosing that allows you to create an arm's length distance between you and all your baggage and the person that on some level, you know you're capable of becoming. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and I go into the book around just the psychological science behind why it's effective um, and the history of people that have used them. Oftentimes people that they would never have guessed have used elements of it because I don't, I say it honestly in the book that do you need to do every single kind of step of the process in it to to tap into the power of it? Of course not. And tons of people haven't. Um, however, as someone who's hired to you know, unleash the performance of people who are operating at a very high level, um, I had to, I created a process and system over time uh, because I always talk about how, you know, you know, utilizing an alter ego is kind of like truth. It's like the center of town. You can, there's many streets and avenues and ways to get to it. And that's why after chapter three, I basically say like, listen, from here forward, if you're interested in chapter 14 and learning about how to tap into totems and artifacts to you know, find your alter ego, go read that one. Cause that mm-hmm. might just prop up something where you wanna go back and, and learn about the superpowers and characteristics and traits back in chapter you know, 10 or whatever the case is. So um, yeah, I'm excited to get it out because it's an idea that's kind of been laying dormant and yet there's been so many breadcrumbs throughout history of people using it yeah. that I can't wait for it to get into people's hands. Well, it's come up in this podcast on several occasions. Uh, I've had James Lawrence, the Iron Cowboy mm-hmm. on the show a couple of times. Uh, for those that are newer to the show, he's the guy who did 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days, which if there was a superhuman feat of yeah. human endurance, that would certainly qualify. Very much so. And he's very in touch with his alter ego, like he fabricated this personality that is the Iron Cowboy, Mm -hmm. um, which is very different from James Lawrence. And when asked point blank, like, how did you get up every single day during these 50 days and do it? He'd he'd say, look, I'd get up, I'm weary, I'm tired. I I don't wanna do any of this. And I'd have to, you know, step into the identity of the Iron Cowboy. What Mm -hmm. would the Iron Cowboy do? And I would go out there and execute as if, the Iron Cowboy was this superhero figure that my kids would look up to and yeah. you know that I aspired to become. Yeah. And something about that process allowed him to transcend his own 
sense of personal limitation to achieve something extraordinary. David yeah. Goggins, the same thing. He calls himself Goggins. Yeah. You know, it's a different version of the same idea. And it's ha- it's left me in reading your book and thinking about this, it's left me realizing like, we like to mock and make fun of people that like, especially professional athletes that refer to themselves in the third person sure. in media yeah. interviews. But yeah. now I have a whole different perspective on this. It's like, yeah. they're they're saying like, this person is the performative aspect of who I am. Exactly. And that is distinct from who I am when I hit the pillow at night and have my yeah. fears and insecurities. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, the context that I try to create with it is that you're not building out an alter ego for all of your life. You know, we're building out an alter ego if needed for someone in a field of play, I call it. So we, we live on many stages. Everyone understands that. Like we've got our home life, we've got, um, you know, our family life with our parents or whatever, or we've got our friends and we have our work and we've got our, uh, our, our sport or our hobby self. And of course there's aspects of our personalities that are coming out differently that are being magnified in each one of those areas. You know, like my, my for myself, when I started to leverage this in business, you know, cause I, I played um, high school football and that's where I started mm-hmm. to get into using the alter ego. Um, and again, I used it like some people do as a survival mechanism against the trauma and the stuff that I was dealing with. Sure. And to play with a new, and to be playful with myself because you know the rest of the time I was ex- highly stressed and anxious. And it was my one opportunity to kind of just be more free. Yeah. And, and yet that was my actual true self that was coming out. I was just leveraging Geronimo, which was my alter ego's name for football, but I was leveraging Walter Payton as well and Ronnie Lott, two Hall of Fame football players. And I was stepping into their characteristics and traits um, when I was on the football field. And when I got into business, you know, I said I started at a very young age, but I looked like I was 12. And I'm uh-huh. like, who's gonna listen to me? I mean, I'm 21 and I look like I'm 12 and I'm, you know, I'm about to go out there and talk about mental toughness and uh, peak performance with people. But the reality was, I wasn't going out trying to work with pro athletes right off the bat. I was working with the people I was really qualified to, to work with at the time, which is just youngsters, you know, 12 year olds, 13 year olds, and just sharing with them the ideas that I had naturally done that had helped me perform at a high level and get mm-hmm. a college football scholarship and, you know, be a nationally ranked badminton player in Canada because badminton and football, they definitely go hand in hand, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> I know. It's weird that you played badminton. Yeah. Um, it's, you say it, I've always said it badminton. Badminton? Badminton. Is that yeah. a very is that a Canadian spin on the word or probably probably it? it's badminton or badminton? Right. Well, yeah. We could we could do ninety minutes on badminton <laughs> and how that all thing happened, but keep we're, going. We're going to see yeah. a drop off in <laughs> yeah, the in the listenership right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and, and and so when I looked at the the self that I wanted to be bringing to the table in business, it was someone who was. Uh, confident because I wasn't confident. It was someone who was decisive because I was terribly indecisive at the time. I couldn't pick a strategy to to do and grow uh, my business. And um, I was terribly inarticulate about what it was that I did as well. So putting words together to describe what I what I was doing wasn't easy for me. And and again, maybe someone was, I mean, I'm dyslexic as well. And so I'm challenged by that. But uh, not challenged by it, it actually is a superpower that I have, um, frankly, because it allows me to think in pictures in my head. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think in shapes and not in words anymore. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then I thought to myself, wait a second, I used this idea of a character when I played football, why don't I leverage that for business? And because I wanted to be smarter than what I was, I had a belief from a very young age that people who wore glasses were smart because my 
best friend in my small little rural school, Mark, had glasses. And grade below me, James, he had glasses too. So I went out to Lens Crafters at West Edmonton Mall, where I lived at the time. Largest mall in the world at the time, by the way. And um, bought non-prescription glasses, which that was when wearing glasses was not cool. Like, mm -hmm. like it is more cool now. And even the optometrist kind of gave me that funny look of, look, really, you don't want, you don't need glasses, but you're going to buy glasses. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, just leave me alone. I can give me some Hence glasses. the glasses on the cover of the book. Well, in some ways, yeah. And, and I used it as my, you know, reverse Superman. You know, Superman put on the glasses to become, you know, mild-mannered Clark Kent. Mm -hmm. I put on the glasses to become the Superman version of myself in business where the, the glasses meant something to me. And, and we'll kind of get into the science of it in a second. And um, yeah, and so when I put them on, I was very intentional about the person that was showing up. And that's so important. And the moment that that Todd version that was, lacking confidence, was indecisive, would start to show up, I'd immediately take off the glasses because at no point in time when I am that version, would he have that thought, like there, which my alter ego in business was Richard. Uh, it's my mm -hmm. first name and we mm -hmm. talked about that before. Right. And so when I put on the glasses, I was stepping into Richard and Richard never felt unconfident, never felt indecisive. But the moment I did, I'd take them off. And after a while, people know that are in, you know this, in that operate in athletics, there's triggers that happen we create for ourselves that allow us to step into a state that's powerful. And just the act of me practicing putting on those glasses, it was almost like a switch was getting flicked on the side of my temple, that the moment that those glasses went on, just this cascading thinking pattern changed in my head. Mm, These like a talisman. Yep, yeah. 100%. How do you reconcile this? Like the validity of this practice is undisputed mm -hmm. and you see it, you know, with varying degrees of success and all kinds of people. And yeah. you have tons of examples in the book and even people like Bo Jackson and like, yeah. you know, so this is something that's happening and something that works. At the same time, when I'm thinking about this, I struggle with how to reconcile this practice with the idea of inhabiting this integrated, authentic persona. Like so much about what I do and what I talk about is this journey towards being comfortable in your own skin yeah. so that you can navigate between all different types of environments and feel good about who you are. And you don't have to modify that persona based on your environment because yeah. you're grounded in your strong sense of self. Sure. So you kind of alluded to this earlier when you were talking about authenticity, but I'm interested in your thoughts and, and how these two things are different from each other or sure. perhaps more similar than we might They're imagine. far more similar than the same or than different. And, and it's that first, we need to recognize that this is, we're all a process of becoming, right? There is this onion that we're trying to peel away. And this is a tool that we use to help people find more of themselves on the field of play of life. Again, like I said, like we, we constantly are human beings, not everybody, but many people who strive to achieve or, or want big things for themselves will judge themselves for their current performance, beat themselves up. They'll stop themselves from getting out on the field to play because of the worry and the judgment of others, right? That's one of the, you know, if, when you'd asked originally at the very beginning, what are some of the things that stop people? Mm -hmm. Judgment and worry of what other people are thinking of mm -hmm. them is probably the second most uh, challenging thing that people have. 
And because just it's hardwired into us yeah. to get worried about whether or not the tribe is going to kick us out. It's just, you know, anthropologically in us. And so for me, it's, yeah, you can try to get to that place of core authenticity, which of, that's what I'm encouraging with people is to really find that core self where you're just honoring the fact that there is this pure place of possibility that isn't governed by all these layers that I talk about in chapter number three, that you can actually circumvent it by instead of attacking it, because that's a, those things that are stopping us is a force. Resistance is a force that we have to deal with. And the force that people are handing, the tool that people are handing people to try to overcome that force is another force called willpower. Willpower will typically come from an intellectual frontal lobe place. And when you're trying to battle the unconscious part of you, I just say to people, good luck. Good luck with battling force with force. Mm -hmm. However, there is a natural genius that's inside of us called the creative imagination that allows us to suspend the disbelief of what we can or cannot do, whatever we think and define ourselves as, and tapping into this creative imagination, which moves the energy into our the uh, more primal part of our brain. And thinking about, geez, what would, how would Rich Roll handle this situation, right? Because we have this grass is greener on the other side things. I look at you and I immediately strip away all of the other narrative that you've had to live with. And I go, man, that guy's strong. He's tough. He's charismatic. He's good looking. People want to be around him. And all of those traits, I'm like, well, I'm not those. Th Maybe I just, someone doesn't feel like they have those things mm -hmm. right now. But I've, if I can step into those for a moment in time or for even longer than that, I can circumvent the thing that's stopping me. And then in that circumvent, in that circumventing process, you actually are releasing the authentic self. It's just that the carrier is an alter ego or a, a new character. Or you're having to cut through the, the lies that you tell yourself that, that create that false narrative that holds you back, right? Yeah. So when you're saying, well, what would Rich Roll do? And you, you roll off this litany of, of characteristics, like mm -hmm. a lot of those to me, like don't feel true or, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, you know yeah. what I mean? Like I can't, I don't feel like I can own that for myself. Sure. And some of them are true and some of them maybe not, it doesn't matter. But I get what you're saying about the idea of like the idealized version of myself when I'm firing on all cylinders would make this choice and would do these things. So mm -hmm. if I can create some kind of mental construct that I can inhabit where those decisions become easier second nature, yeah. um, that will serve the goals that I seek. Well, I'll, I'll use another example that's in the book. So you, you said, you know, cause on the cover are a pair of glasses, which again, friends think, you know, oh, that's Todd paying right. homage to his alter ego. And you know, that would be an easy, place to go to, or it's like, oh, it's the Clark Kent Superman thing. Okay, that's smart too. But really those are a, a replica of um, someone who led a movement in America, probably one of the most important people of the 20th century in you know American history that used this exact same concept to help him go out and do the very hard things that he was motivated to go and do. And that was Martin Luther King. Um, and here we are on Martin, Martin Luther King, King Day. Day. Recording this, mm -hmm. that's, yeah. Um, and so I did a talk back in 2004 at a leadership event 
And um, I mentioned just different mental game strategies that we all use to help us perform to the level that we want to get to. And um, afterwards, this lady came up to me and she said, uh, I, I loved your talk. And specifically, I really liked what you shared around the fact that you wear non-prescription glasses too. Um, and it's funny because Martin didn't wear them either. And it was Coretta Scott King. It was his wife. Oh, wow. and, and, she, and that's where I learned the story. And she said, he felt like he was doing something so important that he wore those glasses as a way to make sure that he was stepping into the version of himself that would help lead such an important movement and not get in the way with his own insecurities of that thing happening. Mm. And so those glasses in some ways were a shield to his really kind of sensitive core self um, so that when he was stepping into that person, that person was the one who was taking the, the slings and the arrows from other people and the criticisms so that he could protect that kind of more pure part of who he was. And now there is actually, and I never told that story because it was always a, it was always a personal story between Coretta and I. And, um, and so I was like, oh, are people gonna you know, believe me that she did that? And then she passed away like two years later. But now there is a monument to uh, Martin Luther King in Atlanta Hartsfield Airport where it actually shares that story uh -huh. of his glasses in a little case along with a couple of other items where it says that, you know, um, these are non-prescription glasses and Martin wore these um, as a way to step into his quote unquote distinguished right, right, right. self. I feel like there's something important about protecting, um, pr protecting the idea, like not overtly publicly sharing it. Yeah. Like if, it's one thing for the Iron Cowboy to say, okay, this is my ult, it's fine. Yeah. But for Martin Luther King to kind of keep that to himself, mm -hmm. right? It's it's a private yep. relationship. I'm glad you said I that. That I think creates energy around it. <clears throat> it also reminds me of, this is something that screenwriters and actors do. Like a screenwriter writing a character will have a secret about that character that helps inform how they write dialogue. Mm -hmm that only the screenwriter knows. Yeah. And once you know that secret, you're like, oh, it's so obvious, yeah. but you would never know it. Yeah. Or the actor inhabiting that character will say, well, this could be anything. It'd be like, you know, my character's terrified of water or some little, or I'm just channeling, uh, you know, Robert Redford and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or something mm -hmm. like that. Like they're hanging their hat on some alter ego that informs the choices they're gonna make on screen, but it's their little secret, yeah. right? And once yeah. you know that secret, you're like, oh, it, now I can see it in everything that they're doing. But if you don't know it, you would never know. But yeah. you're like, wow, that's so amazing what they're able to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again, that's, I mean, that's what I think just makes human beings just fascinating is like when you become more friendly with someone, you're like, oh, that makes such a book. I mean, now, now they make more and more sense to me. And it's like the very first time I shared with my wife, um, you know, what happened to me, she's like, Oh my God, she actually smiled and got happy. Not because she was happy that that happened to me, because she just was like, oh, you make so much sense to me now mm. as to why you do things the way that you do. But um, 100% that- um, Was your wife not aware of the abuse situation until recently? Just, uh, I didn't tell any human being until September of last year. So, or Whoa. September of 2017. So a year and a half ago, roughly from right now. Um, yeah, I did not share it. And there was so many times where I got really close, but you know, didn't. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, so um, that idea of keeping it private is something I encourage people to do. And especially like with athletes where it opens up the doorway for trash talk 
you know, and that's, you know, that's, well, that's to why. To be mocked. Or to be mocked or yeah. something, sure. Um, and, and yet there are some people who have just such a fortitude with it. They're like, I don't care. It's like Kobe Bryant and the Black Mamba. Black Mamba, you know, right. I tell the story in the book about when he got, where he got the inspiration for his alter ego, the Black Mamba, which is when he was watching the movie Kill Bill. And um, that snake came on and he was just like, wow, that's exactly who I want to be, that quick strike. And that shaped, you know, what he said was the characteristics and traits that he wanted to bring out onto the court. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and then there's other people where if you're, you know, again, I'm building a, I'm sort of leading this mission of, and I say it in the book, I didn't invent alter egos. Cicero was the first person to mention alter egos in 44 BC. And the root of the word alter ego means the other I or trusted friend, which is really the big, which is really kind of one of those ideas that I want people to take home is this, this idea is that trusted friend that can help you go out and do the things that you want to strive to go and do or help you become the person that you most want to become. That's that trusted friend. Um, it's also extremely healthy psychologically to have that kind of healthy version of yourself inside of you, right? Instead of that version of yourself that's always beating you up. Yeah. So help me create an alter ego for myself. <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't even know, I don't even know how to, I've never put any thought into this. Yeah. So yeah. how so, does that work? You know, we talk about it in the book, you know, again, like I say in the book, there are many, many ways to start building the alter ego. But if I was gonna, you know, unfold the process, it's first quickly identifying where are the places that you're most frustrated? We always start first in context. What part of your life would it make the most sense to go and do? Because people automatically go to work, sports, like depending on their, but I've had clients, their biggest successes came from the fact that they built an alter ego that was for home life. It was about being- Right, you talk about that with like the Navy SEALs and people yeah. like that who, who, you know, crush it, at work, but then are challenged when they come home and have to be a dad and have to kind yeah. of inhabit a different type of a skill set and personality. Yeah. So for you, um, you know, it's, it's choose which one that what's that what's that place that we well, want. I'll give to you one. Yeah. So here, so I don't feel like I need an alter ego for most of what I do. I don't need it to be a dad. I don't need it to do what we're doing sure. right now. Uh, I don't feel like I, I I need to do it as an athlete. Um, I feel like I still have plenty of room to to grow and expand on stage. Like when I do public speaking, mm, yeah, I have like uh, I feel like I'm batting. You know, I don't know, three hundred or something. Like sometimes I go out and I kill it. Other times I'm all up in my head. That's and I'm a nervous. terrible analogy. You can't yeah. say I'm batting three hundred because well, that's I mean, actually a really great yeah, batting actually, average. <laughs> this, that's actually it shows me how little I know about baseball. I was trying to think of like what's a low batting average. I, I, said I, want, I wanted to protect I all the baseball players yeah, out there, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm gonna get crushed for saying <laughs> like, that. Oh my so, god! All right, whatever yeah. like a low batting average is. Yeah. yeah. Um, because well, I would. I'll temper that by saying more more often than not, I'm pretty good, but I mm -hmm. know I could be, I know I have the capacity to own the stage yeah. and and deliver in a much more profound, impactful way than I generally do. Yeah. Most of the time I do fine. Occasionally I'm not good at all because I'm nervous and up in my head or yeah. tired or what have you. Yeah. So that is one scenario in which I feel like if I could narrow down, like if I could zero in on some kind of alter ego yeah. that would allow me to get out of myself yes. and all my insecurities that come with stepping up on a stage and seeing a bunch of people in front of me, 
that that would serve me. Well, I mean, you just encapsulated perfectly as to why we go and we we do it. You know, to step out of those insecurities is a fantastic motivation to do it. So, you know, are who who have you seen? Well, let's go back again to that starting place of what are the traits that you're currently exhibiting that you don't like right now? You kind of already said a few of them. Like one, you're in your own head, maybe. Uh, cons- and again, I'm just going to spitball, but you're concerned about what other people are like, how they're receiving you at, the, at, at this time. You're probably also talking to audiences who aren't ultra types, right? You know, it's like- It's all different kinds of people. But yeah, I mean, there's a whole litany of reasons why, you know, I, I feel like I hamstring myself. And I certainly have people that I look to who I think are masters of the art form that I try to emulate. And what are those? What are those things that you are looking at? Uh, just total comfort, completely- uh, don't care whether the audience is responding or not yeah. because they're in their thing, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, unbelievably relaxed, very clear on the message that they're trying to convey. Okay. Um, spontaneous, fun, reactive, you know, sort of, they're not so wed to whatever it is that they're doing that they can enjoy the presence of the audience and bring them into it. Like there's a whole variety of things. Do you feel like you take yourself really seriously? Too much, yeah. Yeah. In that, and especially in that context. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, definitely. So, well, then it's not shocking as to why you're going to go to the opposite and go, well, I want to be more fun, reactive, playful on stage, more kind of in your own body then as well. Um, so, beyond the fact that you love those characteristics when you see them in others, is there anyone or anything that you think? as a person, as an animal, whatever, also um, contains those qualities already. And the reason I ask that question is, is because human beings are so story-driven and narrative-driven, we watch movies and we get engaged with that character that's on the screen. And they oftentimes become great sources of characteristics and traits that we want to embody. And because we're so story-driven, that's when, we, when we're connected to someone or something emotionally, the chances of us embodying and then carrying out those characteristics on stage for ourselves is just that much higher. Why? Because I don't want you to be consciously trying to think about being that person. I want you to feel that person. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and again- How do you train that? Uh, it's, it's like practice with anything. Um, truly, like I said, with, with stepping into quote unquote Richard or Geronimo, um, you know, I'll tell you the process that I did when I was uh, an athlete, you know, playing football is I went into my mental movie theater and, uh, in through two separate doors would walk, uh, Walter Payton and Ronnie Lott, Geronimo leading a tribe of uh, five Native American warriors. And they would walk up to me and uh, Walter Payton would collect trading cards from uh, Ronnie Lott as well and hand them to Geronimo. And then Geronimo would hand them to me. And as he handed them to me, Walter Payton would say to me, take these cards and you embody all of us with the way that you show up on that field but don't you for a second dishonor who we are and how we showed up by not showing up like we would. 
And that's what I did. I take, I had five trading cards. This is very specific. Yeah. This is like a lucid dream. Yeah. That's a lot to keep in mind. Not even, no, it was no? It's so fast, man. And so I had these five trading cards and I had, I put Walter Payton's in my helmet because uh-huh. I wanted to think like him on the field because he was just a phenomenal, he could read things that other people couldn't. And then I wanted to hit like Ronnie Lott out on the football field. And if you don't know Ronnie, he was an absolutely mm-hmm. explosive, you know, damaging defensive player. And I put, I tucked those underneath my shoulder pads. And then I'd take Walter Payton, the final two cards of Walter Payton, and I'd stuff them inside of my um, thigh pads because I wanted to run like him. And again, I was a six foot tall, scrawny, 159 pound soaking wet kid, but I would play way beyond my size on a football field. Now I'm not gonna make myself out to be like, I'm just like this NCAA champion. Cause you know, I definitely untapped as much as myself as I could, but I played way bigger on that field. And it was just that ritual. You talk about those rituals before about, you know, you getting into that rhythm when you're, when you're getting ready for a race, right? That was my ritual mentally to be very intentional about who was gonna show up. Not the 159 pound version, that, that person was left on the sidelines. I didn't even put a category of what my size was. Mm-hmm. And I loved it because people saw me coming and they're like, oh, I'm gonna barrel over this guy. And I would just destroy them. I broke shoulder pads consistently, actually, straps on my shoulder pads. In one game, I broke, I actually cracked my helmet twice by hitting guys hard. Right, because you're you're basically inhabiting this Ronnie Lott, Walter Payton hybrid, yeah. Geronimo yeah. character, yeah, who doesn't look anything like you, no. and is capable of things that you're not capable Suspended of. Suspended disbelief about yeah. you know whatever. So you're going to play above your level, but you're also going to end up getting injured, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> well, yeah. How does this how does this differ um, in the in, in a professional context versus sports? Like, what are the differences between the work that you do with high performance athletes and business executives. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there's a lot of similarities there, people are trying to perform to their peak, but there's yeah. gotta be differences as yes. well. So for the most part with athletes, you're in, you're, you're, you're tr- with a lot of them, you're embodying the characteristics for the majority of a performance. But I talk about in the, in the book, this idea of the moments of impact that, Maybe you don't need an alter ego for every single moment that you're a salesperson or, you know, someone who is, um, you know, performing in business like you are, but there's these opportunities that are, you know, it's like a KPI, a key performance indicator, the thing that's going to really help you be successful. And so if you're a great presenter as a salesperson, but then when it comes to closing the deal, you shirk away from actually closing it because Mm -hmm. you are concerned about rejection and, you know, the longer, the longer that I don't hear a no, at least I've still got them in as a, you know, prospect kind of thing that's not really serving you at all. And so I don't, I don't want to dive into the, the deep history of why that's stopping you. That's not my, that's not my role. Instead, I want to give you some tools and strategies to help you perform right now. And that's why the alter ego became my number one tool. You got to remember, I was being called on a Wednesday to come and show up to help someone on a Friday when they're performing at the US Open the day later. Mm-hmm. I didn't have time. I mean, we leaned on for long-term strategies, meditation, my go-to easily. It's fantastic at developing focus and concentration skills because it, it's, the, it's the equivalent of flexing the bicep muscle for the frontal lobe, right? If you wanna get bigger bicep muscles, do arm curls or you know, um, uh, any sort of back exercise that's gonna strengthen your bicep. Well, what, what do you do to strengthen focus and concentration? Well, the, it sits in the frontal lobe, so meditation, I haven't found anything that's better at developing that. But 
on a Wednesday, when they're performing on a Friday or Saturday, I need something else. Mm -hmm. And alter egos were a fantastic way to help make that happen. So for people in professional lives, it's, well, what are those, you know, areas that are kind of, you know, chafing you right now? You talked about getting on stage. Well, it's categorically proven by other people to step into a, you know, a different alter ego or, you know, leverage that idea at mm -hmm. least. Um, and do you have to give it a name like I did or like, you know, um, uh, the iron um, cowboy, right? Yeah, the iron cowboy. Iron cowboy. Or, or, you know, Goggins, all he's doing is just removing his first name. Um, no, you don't need to, but it's super helpful to do it actually as well. I talk about using names in the book and, and how to give you like so many different ways to create a name for it, uh -huh. um, to create a new identity that you're going to take out there. That's more playful. Does it matter if you're, motivation um, is predominantly derived intrinsically versus extrinsically. In other words, certain people, as you know, like yeah. are motivated by the desire to be the best version of themselves. They're yeah. competing against themselves versus the person who hates to lose or just has to beat that other person or has to win, like the, or has to get the approval of yeah. X, Y, and Z people. Yeah, absolutely it does. That's if the motivation is coming from the external part of the field of play that I talk about in chapter three, all you're going to do is still create a trapped self. Cause that's that feeling that we get. Like when we feel like we're not showing up, like we know that we can, that's, that's that sense. That's like, ugh, mm -hmm. not all of me is getting out there. It's trapped inside. And then we get can caught up in our own head of like, well, what's causing me to get trapped or how do I get past this? And con conversely, when you actually feel like all of you is getting out there and the all of you that you most want to be getting out there, the internal feeling, and this is actually a term that one of my clients gave to me, is he just said, I feel like my heroic self is getting out there. I feel like the hero that's living within me is truly now showing up. So that intention that you're talking about is the intention coming from external, trying to impress other people. Well, you're gonna get trapped that is going to wear you out. Mm -hmm. um, plus you're putting on a facade then. Whereas if your intention is about activating these characteristics that I am going to borrow from Mr. Bean being playful. And I talk about Mr. Bean's you know, process of creating his alter ego, which helped him become a better actor. Um, then, and you know, and cause you want that goofiness on stage. And I've got, cause I work with people who are going to do a lot of speeches. There's, you know, one of my guys who's, who loves to be goofy up there. He's not using Mr. Bean, but that could be one of the, but what are those characteristics and traits that they embody that you're intentionally bringing so that you can bring the best self to that moment? Right. Absolutely. And in a way that I would imagine once you're tapped into these intrinsic drivers, then it becomes a, uh, a calculus or a conversation about how they, um, mesh with a core value system. So mm -hmm. if those intrinsic motivators are in alignment with the core values yeah. of that person, then that's gonna create a potent combination that can be accelerated by this alter ego, but which ultimately is gonna be the propulsion mechanism for success. And the magic of it for me is, we had talked about this at the beginning, is you know, whether someone is outcome orientated, they're waiting until they get the medal or finish the race. That's a shitty existence because, you know, it's a fleeting moment. Mm -hmm. Whereas this brings you right back to the thing that makes the people who are truly 
powerful performers, you get locked into the process. Process, yeah. yeah. And I think uh, it's important to point out that any athlete, any successful athlete with any kind of longevity uh, has to be process oriented yeah. in order to avoid burnout because there invariably will be plateaus. Mm -hmm. You're not always improving. And if you're um, attached in an unhealthy way to the idea that every time you have a match or a game or a competition or what have you, that you have to be better than you were yeah. the week prior or the month prior or the season prior, um, that's gonna be problematic. Yeah. Because ultimately it's going to ebb and flow. If you're invested in the process, or in marginal improvements in different areas of what it means to be a well-rounded athlete, that's gonna keep you um, uh, energized yeah. about your career, but that's a very slippery slope because being an elite athlete means constantly improving your performance, even if it's those tiny marginal, you know, 0.05% gains. Well, and it also gets, it also gives you a tremendous sense of control because the thing that makes you feel out of control is when you're so focused on outcomes. And I'll use me as a perfect example and this book. So I had, you know, when, when I was out talking to publishers about this mm -hmm. book, there was, we had, we had meetings with 19 publishers, which if you're not familiar with the publishing space is an obscene amount of people that were interested. And it was great, it was an amazing experience. And we had so many people that were saying such nice things and this is gonna be huge and you know, filling up my head with all of this stuff, right? right? And so my expectation now is that this is going to be a New York Times bestseller, right? And I'm gonna make this thing a New York Times bestseller. Well, that's an outcome that I can't control because ultimately that's a curated list. It's actually not a true representation of books sold. Um, and so I was, focused on engineering, all of the different activities that would make this thing a, a New York Times bestseller. And I was getting massively stressed out. And then, you know, one of my really good friends who was one of the kind of launching pads for the book, uh, Tucker Max, I was sitting out at his place in Austin and he was like, dude, you've won. Like you had 19 people bidding on this. You got a great advance for this book. It's a great, like the finished product is a great book, you know, when was the last time you ever told anyone, oh, go buy this because it's a New York Times bestseller? And I was like, well, never. Mm -hmm. And- um, It used to mean something that it doesn't really mean anymore. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, just, it just brought me back. I'm like, wait a second, Todd. For 20 plus years, you've been doing nothing but coaching people on the process to get them locked in the process. You've now shifted your perspective on your own book to an outcome. Again, uh -huh. this is the value of having chief performance officer sitting outside because inside the bottle, I wasn't reading the label right. And so since that moment, which was November the 12th, I've been just doing the do, just staying focused on the process that I can control to help get the message out and the book out. And, you know, leads me to sit here with you because talking to Jonathan about, hey, do, do you know anyone that could, you know, help, you know, you know, um, uh, sit down with. So, um, yeah, just this idea of that intentionality being something that you can really control is extremely powerful to get people to enjoy as much as many moments of their day, their work life or whatever yeah. as possible. It's also okay to wanna be on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's a very human thing. And that would be like, oh my God, what a lifetime achievement. Sure. It's a super cool thing. Yeah. So I would say, that it's important to also be gentle on yourself and not shame yourself if that is a goal that you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, you know, an analogous situation would be uh, an athlete who's trained their entire career to uh, go to the Olympics. They go to Olympic trials, they make the Olympic team. That's the equivalent of you getting a book deal with mm -hmm. 19, whatever, yeah. 19 publishers wanting the book. Uh, it's going to be uh, predictable and logical for that athlete to then say, boy, I'd like to win the gold medal. Mm -hmm. You know, So is that person attached to process or outcome? Well, that's an outcome driven thing. Yeah. If they don't win the gold medal, they're probably gonna be disappointed. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's, there's a place to want that gold medal or want that New York Times, you know, check mark. Um, but being wary of that attachment to that outcome not being unhealthy. Well, like be, having some attachment to that outcome is what's driving yeah. the work ethic and the investment in the process to get there, right? So it's a little, it's a it's a more nuanced thing, I think. Yeah. Um yeah, well, I mean, we live in this world of polarity, right? I mean, there's black, white, there's up, down, there's inside, outside. And so, you know, just this idea that everything is process oriented. And I mean, I am not that person uh -huh. at all. I mean, I'm around achievers and strivers, you know, ambitious people all the time. And so there is this balance and, um, or this really, I don't think of it as balance. It's this integration of both of them living together. Um, but when you're, when you're doing the activity to help you win the gold medal. If you're focused on the gold medal in that moment, you are dead in the water. Well, also not self-identifying with it. It can't be yes. a, a commentary on who you are as a human being. Exactly. Like, so the stakes of like winning yes. that gold medal can't be a referendum on whether you're a, a human being of value or not. Yeah, there's right? a, there's a you would love this. Have you seen the documentary that just came out on HBO um, about the surf culture in Hawaii with Kelly Slater? Yeah, I just friends? watched it actually. Yeah, I just yeah, watched yeah. it like two days uh -huh. ago. It's awesome. Cool. It's mm -hmm. it's a it's 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 kind of what we're talking about. And yeah. just the journey that all of them went through and the destructive nature of, you know, pursuit, pursuit, pursuit. And um yeah, anyway. Well, it's about it's about, you know, the love and purity of this activity that was shared by these young men. Mm -hmm. But then when money and pressure and competition and all of that gets merged into this subculture how that fractures the community and leads people in different directions. Yeah. You know, so you have Kelly Slater, super competitive, you know, was willing to do what some of these other guys weren't willing to do in yeah. order to win and 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 maintain that status. Um, and then other athletes who were really just in it for didn't really want to compete at all, right? Mm -hmm. But they shared this love of this thing. Yeah. And how, you know, that generation had to navigate that and what it did to those relationships. Yeah, yeah. super interesting. I forget the name of the documentary. I know, I'm blanking right now. I'm blanking on but it But it's too. something generation or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Highly recommend it. Um, yeah, I don't know, uh, what were we talking about now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking about process and intention, but yeah. I think we've you know, covered it too with people. Yeah, so so yeah, it's like, uh, it's it's the journey, it's not the destination. Great, it's the process, it's not the outcome, yes, but, you know, it is more complicated than that. Yeah. It, you know, it's it, it you know it's a desire for a certain outcome that's going to wedge you in the process. Yeah. Like you can't completely uh, you know remove these things from each other. It's their relationship to each yeah. other that creates that alchemy. Yeah, and I mean, what you just said is exactly right. With this, you know, it's complicated, and that's what gets we. 
if there's ever like an objection around the idea of the alter ego is they're trying to simplify life down to just like, oh, but shouldn't we all just love ourselves anyway? I'm like, I, I love that idea. But as someone who has had an entire career helping people achieve things and through that process, mm -hmm. enjoy it as well, it's a lot more nuanced and complex than just sitting down and saying, yeah, but you just need to love yourself. <laughs> I'm a great example of that. You know, there's there's a lot more to human beings and what people have gone through than just, um, you know, waking up and doing some things. Like there's layers of narrative that people have. And so, you know, that's why it was important for me to put in the, this kind of the science and the psychology behind why this is so effective. Like the idea that I wanted to share from the beginning around um, enclosed cognition. Enclosed cognition is an idea that sits um, in our um, in our psyche that we as human beings attach meaning, we enclose meaning cognitively to things that we wear and things around us. And uh, a good example of this was, or a, a study that was done by the Kellogg School of Management was they brought a bunch of students into um, a classroom. And on the board was, have you ever seen one of those uh, kind of puzzles where it has five blocks across the top, five blocks going down, and in each block is the word of a color, but it's colored in a different color. So mm -hmm. it's like the word is yellow, but it's blue. Mm -hmm. And then it's green, but it's red. So it says green, but it's red. And the trick with it is, if you're ever given it, is you've got to go through and say all 25 of the colors, but the word. But it's really it's hard to do it because you're seeing blue, but it's right. a yellow word. The color that you're seeing yeah. is not the word that you're seeing. And so they brought in a bunch of students and they asked them to, uh, they're testing their focus and concentration skills. And they said, okay, like go through this puzzle and you know give us the word. So they timed them, tracked how many mistakes that they made. And then they left the room. Then they brought in another group of students and they gave them a white coat and told them it was a painter's coat. Okay. And they got them to put it on. And then they did the exercise, track the results, they leave the room, uh -huh. bring in another group, give them the same white coat, but this time they tell them it's a lab coat or a doctor's coat and they do the experiment. Okay, so what do you think the results were or the differences were between the people who were plain clothes and wearing the painter's coat? The people in the painter's coat did better because they were, they were adorned in something that made them feel like they were an expert. Okay. So the stats were zero difference between the two. Oh, parts. really? Yeah. And it, and it comes down to because the test itself was testing your focus and concentration skills and your ability to see detail. Now, the people with the lab coat or doctor's coat, they made less than half the mistakes as everyone else, and they finished it in less than half the time. So they showed higher levels of focus and concentration, you know, didn't have as many mistakes because they were enclosed with the idea that when you were wearing a lab coat, someone who has a lab coat on or a doctor's coat, they're smart, they're, they know details, whatever someone's meaning was, mm -hmm. it helped them perform better. Again, they performed better. Mm -hmm. Now, they did the same test. This time, they told them that the coat was the same. It was a painter's coat for one group and a lab coat for another group. But this time, they were just standing next to it and it was on a mannequin. Didn't change no results change. Unless it was on them, they didn't enclose themselves with the cognitive traits of someone who was more detail-oriented. And then they did a creative test with them. 
So paint, again, this is the exact same coat. Their coat is no different. Whether They just told them it was a painter's coat or right. told them it was a lab coat. Did a creative test. Now the people who were told that it was a painter's coat, they performed the test better than the people who were wearing the lab coat and plain clothes. So that's why for me, when I'm helping people to develop this ideal of tapping into an alter ego, making sure that the glasses that I'm putting on mean something. And I mean, I talk about in the book how uh, there's been many studies have been done around people who wear glasses are perceived to be smarter, you know, um, more patient, mm -hmm. you know, all these types of things. And, you know, for my client who was an equestrian rider, her alter ego, she grew up in the time of Wonder Woman, not the current Wonder Woman, but the 1970s version of Wonder Woman. And just that was immediately when I said, well, who would be your alter? She immediately just went, right away loved her i'm like why what traits do you think she's like she's just calm she stands her ground she's just just filled with like pure confidence and a relaxed confidence and for someone who was sitting on a horse that didn't have that like that relaxed confidence that was great i'm like okay great what are we going to use now to activate her okay what's that totem or artifact i talk about in the book you said a talisman um and so she went out and bought a, or got a custom made bracelet actually that looked mm -hmm. a lot more similar to um, hers and use that. Now for me, I know human beings, when we develop triggers for ourselves, sound is actually one of the most important triggers that we can use. It's a very underutilized one, the sound of something. So for me, I was like, no, when you get your, when you get that bracelet made, make sure it has a nice snap sound to it because that's the moment when you're activating. Like on the clasp. On the clasp itself, like, yeah, yeah. Like the Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah. When that, when that thing comes together, I want that thing to snap in place. Um, sound is just Can so she powerful. hold them up to like get, you know, yeah. uh, deflect bullets? Of course. Stuff like that? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. And so, you know, just that I idea. I would have opted for the invisible plane, but <laughs> That's a tough one now. <laughs> yeah. How do you, this is sort of similar to the other question I asked, but like, how does that, how does this square with um, the problematic nature of fake it till you make it, right? Because yeah. on some level you're saying, well, look, you know, she doesn't have the confidence when she gets on the horse. So she's got to like conjure up this image of Wonder Woman mm -hmm. and try to inhabit um, this yeah. artificial persona yeah. in order to be the person that she wants to be. Yeah. Is that not faking it till you make it? Like what part of this is really authentic and what part of this is kind of trickery, I suppose. Sure, so just the idea of fake it till you make it, for one thing, as a term, fails the first sniff test, which is why would you put the word fake it in there right off the bat? Because that's gonna deliver resistance mm -hmm. with people because no one ultimately wants to be fake. Um, but again, getting back to the true intention behind this is for people to realize that, okay, so, her current narrative is that she doesn't have confidence on the horse. But what I know as someone who's worked with so many people, she does have the confidence. It's sitting inside of her already. Right. She's just- This is a way of giving her permission. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's suspending the disbelief that you don't have this right now. And, are you, and allowing to step into this idealized version, which we as human beings do. It's that grass is green on the other side. You know, we think that that person is flawless. So I'm gonna, I'm like, well, great. If that's, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not here to argue with human psychology, right? I'm here to tap into its power to allow people to get out onto their field of play as they most 
want to, so they, they can lead the lives that are a true reflection of who they really are, instead of being impeded by traumas, imposter syndrome, or any one of the little hidden, um, the hidden kind of uh, things that the enemy likes to use to pull us into the ordinary world. Mm-hmm. Outside of uh, crafting, cultivating these alter egos yeah. for your clients, um, and the practice of meditation, which you already talked about a little bit, what are some of the daily habits or rituals that you try to um, get your clients to adopt? Okay. One of them is this idea of when you have a performance that's upcoming, there is this, a lot of people talk, you've probably heard this as well. A lot of people talk about the importance of visualization or imagery skills, right? Mm -hmm. And um, for those of you out there who have heard this before and are frustrated because you don't know how to do it very well, you're in good company because it's, it's a skill you have to learn how to do. Everyone just, that's been a lot of my problem with people in the personal development or self-help or even the mental game space is they, they say it so flippantly, like you just got to visualize as if it's something that is very easy to do. It's actually not very easy to do. Um, just because we have the capacity and we do it all of the time anyway, doesn't mean that we can do it with the intention to bring about the outcome or the process that we want. Mm. And so um, one day when I was sitting down, just um, journaling for myself, it just occurred to me that in that moment, I had sort of slowed down space and time in my own head because writing is the thinking part of, is the doing part of thinking. When you're writing, it's the doing part of thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm actively thinking, but I'm on paper. Now, because I can't write as fast as I think, it sort of slows down my mind. And for anyone who wants to try to train people to get into the flow state or the zone state, this is gonna be one of my tools I'm gonna to use then. So it just pinged me in that moment. And so I started scripting out what I wanted my next speech to look like. And I would script it out in a process-oriented way. So for people who are, you know, one of the, you asked the question around what's some of the daily rituals, not that it needs to be a daily ritual, but a ritual to help people perform. If I had a presentation coming up, I'm going to script out on paper how it's going to go. So it's, you know, when I step on the stage, I feel this extraordinary sense of calm confidence that I'm talking to the exact crowd that wants to hear me today. And the closer and closer I get to the stage and shake the hand of the person who's handing me the mic, um, I just feel this deepening relaxation as I'm walking towards them. And when I grab the mic to turn to the crowd, I see a sea of smiling faces that are eager to accept the ideas that I'm there to share with them. Mm-hmm. And as I, just, as I talk about how important it is to um, find that authentic version of who you are, it becomes like this playful experience of just read and react with the crowd. And at the end of the presentation or at the end, at the end of the speech, when I end it, I know deep down that the person that needed to hear that today heard it and it landed hard for them. So, you know, I could go on with it, right? But with it, what I'm not doing is necessarily thinking about the outcome of the moment. I'm not saying, and when I end the speech, the crowd rises to their feet and throws a thunderous applause at me because that's not something that I can control. The moment I start scripting up my outcome, the moment I'm gonna get 
create some anxiety for me. Yeah, visualizing the emotional experience that you want to. Yeah. You want to have. Yeah. And and inhabiting what that feels like specifically. Exactly. So you asked, you know, what's one of the rituals? That is one of my core tools to to work with athletes on. And you know, I've got so many that after you know, because some of them I work with them in a short term and I'm coming in to just be a kind of a quick hit artist to help them with something. Some of them, they, yeah. it's, a, it's a long-term thing, but probably beyond the alter ego, that idea of scripting out performance, scripting out a day and really engaged with, you know, who and what is intentionally uh, showing up there mm-hmm. has been one of their absolute favorites. Yeah, I, it, the idea of slowing it down, I think is really important. Like. I think visualization is super important. It's something I've been doing since I was, I don't know, 12 years old. Yeah, uh, I learned it in swimming. And in my particular version of this or the way that I practice it, um, it is about that interior emotional landscape. Like yeah. what does it feel like viscerally to be in this situation so that nothing is unanticipated? It's not, outcome driven, although you can visualize success and experience that. But I also think it's important to do it like so incrementally slow. Like you could spend an hour on the first, you know, minute of diving into the pool for this race. So you are so connected to every minuscule detail of that, that it's impossible for anything to come as a surprise. And I think then it's important to um, visualize how you're going to respond when mm-hmm. something happens that you don't anticipate. Because I think that's really the, the defining factor in the successful versus also ran athlete. It's how you manage <laughs> the unexpected. Yeah. Because we can all crush it when everything goes our way and, it, and it's everything, the stars perfectly aligned for us to perform at our peak. Yeah. But what do you do when you get thrown a wrench that you didn't foresee? Uh, the ability to adapt is crucial. And if you let allow that to throw you out of the game mentally or physically and just unravel, then it's yeah. a disaster. I'm so glad you said that. It's one of those, cause I get asked the question all the time. Well, what what is mental toughness? Like what's your, how would you define Resilience. mental toughness? Yeah, and I, I say mental toughness is your ability to be flexible and adaptable despite what you're given as circumstances or the, what the world is giving around you, right? It's that you were talking about that flex, like that ability to respond in the moment, not with that emotional self that's maybe going to cause you to um, wear yourself out or just take a stupid penalty if you're playing a, a team sport or anything like that, but truly be able to be, because the moment you think that your mental toughness is about that square jaw rigidity, that's not what it is. It's not that. It's the people who are the most flexible and adaptable that can respond you know, uh, you know, rejig their strategy to to win are the ones who come out at the end the most successful. Right. What's your favorite alter ego story? Um, there are a lot of them. There are some really unique ones. The one that I share at the very beginning of the book, which made a big difference for me because it- The Bo Jackson one? Yeah. Why don't you just tell that story? Sure. Um, so I was, I was speaking at an event in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was waiting backstage in the green room uh, to come out for my talk, which was gonna happen in about 15 minutes. And I was by myself in the room and all of a sudden uh, through the doorway came this like really physical specimen as a, of a human being. And in my head, I was like, oh, wow, 
I used to play that guy on Nintendo all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was Bo Jackson and he started walking towards me yeah. and uh, he's like, hi, I'm Bo Jackson. And I said, yeah, I know who you are. I'd be a pretty terrible uh, person in sport if I didn't know who the only two sport all-star was in pro, um, in pro sports. And I said, you know, I, I played you a lot on uh, Tecmo Bowl as a kid. You, you won me a lot of games. And he laughed and he's like, yeah, you're not the first one to say that. And uh, then he asked me, like, what are you, are you here to talk? And I said, yeah, what are you gonna talk about with the kids? And with the coaches, and I said, well, I'm going to talk to them about like mental toughness uh, strategies and tools, but specifically, I'm going to talk to them about you know using an alter ego to go out there and truly untap those um, traits and characteristics that are naturally inside of you, so you're mm-hmm. not caught up in your own head. And uh, he stopped, and I'll just never forget his face because he kind of got this really quizzical look, and he just looked at me and he said, cocked his head to the side and he said, you know, Bo Jackson never played a down of football his entire life, and I was like, interesting. Tell me more. I like how he used the third person. I know, yeah, but, <laughs> right that's, off the bat. but that's what you said before. It's so classic. That's, it's, yeah. It is, it's, it's so classic. And that's what I mean before about the whole idea of breadcrumbs have been laid throughout to, to really point to people that this is a very healthy thing for you to do. Um, so anyways, he, uh, he then said, uh, you know, when I was, a lot of people who know my backstory know that when I was a youngster or when I was a young kid, I was a very angry kid, you know, um, misbehaved. And I would take that anger out onto the playing field, but it would get me into a, a lot of trouble. Take bad penalties, be very uncoachable. And so one night I was watching a movie and I saw this character come on the screen and immediately I was like, oh, I wanna be him. He's cold, he's methodical, he's calculating. And if I could just step into that, when I go on the football field, I won't take so many penalties. I won't be so angry while I'm out there mm-hmm. because this person wasn't angry. And it was Jason from Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. which is which shows the power of the human mind and how he didn't, if people go, what? So someone who's Jason. angry and yeah. filled with rage or whatever is gonna step into Jason from Friday the 13th. And, but his takeaway were the things, the traits that he most wanted to start embodying that he thought would help him overcome these deficits that he was dealing with. And he would this say- Dispassionate like, killer. Yes, yeah. And he said like, listen, <laughs> I, I, I know what you're, I know you're probably gonna go out there and maybe talk to them about like uh, the importance of goals, but he said, I truly didn't have them. I went out there on, on a mission and, you know, I talk in the book about the importance of a mission and missions are more powerful than goals. I went on there on a mission to just destroy anything that got in my past uncaringly. And um, and so he said, when I came out of the, when I came out of the, the tunnel or, when I get onto the football field, Jason lived on the football field. And when I would step on the grass, I'd, you know, when my, I'd make a heel to toe motion. And the moment that that happened, that's when Jason would enter me. Uh-huh. And I would just embody that cold calculating <laughs> nature of who I want to be. And again, that's beautiful. Had now, he does, never like told anyone that though, that like no, this was his private yeah, little and thing, so right? it, Well, it was out there a little bit in uh-huh. the kind of circles of people who knew him and, and stuff, but, you know, he was just like, this is, he's like, you get paid to do this for a living with people. And I said, well, it's not the only thing I do. I mean, this is just one of my, one of my strategies, but I said, it's, it's such a, a, a big core part of it. And he was just fasting with that idea that this was a, a real thing. Like it was just, he thought it, like many people do, they're like, oh, I just kind of fell into doing that. And I said- Yeah, they yeah. just do it. They just, they just somehow it just spontaneously occurs, yeah. whether it's a, um, safety mechanism, a survival yeah. mechanism, or some way that they just fall into that seems to work for them. Like nobody taught them to yeah. do this or said they should explore this. Yeah. And 
you know, just like that exponent was for him. That's why I get excited about talking about the idea yeah. of people because um, it can be used for many different things. I, I mean, there's a, um, a story that I have. Um, I didn't put it in the book, but uh, it's because the story didn't come out until afterwards. But have you seen Mr. Rogers' documentary? No, I haven't. That's oh, at the top of the list of the documentaries. It's so I good. See. I know everybody's and talking I, about it. I don't want to ruin it for you, but probably a third, a third of the movie is talking about Mr. Rogers' alter ego. Mm. And mm. I his, didn't know that. Yeah, his hand puppet, the cat. Oh yeah. And his wife is talking so beautifully about how the hand puppet was his actual alter ego, but really was the most true representation of who he was at his core. The alter ego allowed his core self to truly show up for people, which was this like truly loving and kind and that self that was showing up for kids and it was just being transmuted through this this hand puppet. Mm -hmm. But it's a beautiful story. People yeah. have to watch well, it. Well, that that goes to the center of of really your core thesis, which is the inversion of the idea of the alter ego. The alter ego is actually the authentic self, exactly. given permission to express itself, uh, you know, uninhibited. Yeah. And you kind of open the book with this question of like in the context of Superman, who's who's the alter ego? And everybody says, well, Clark Kent, you know, is, mm -hmm. or Superman's the alter ego, but no, Superman is the real guy. Clark yeah. Kent is the alter ego, yeah. right? Yeah. Similarly, the hand puppet is the true authentic yeah. Fred Rogers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I like that idea. Yeah. And, How, so, and so I say that because um, when I go home at night, do I need to bring I, well, I don't bring, I don't wear my glasses around my my kids, not because you don't wear a hand puppet. Yeah, exactly. I walk in the door and I grab a hand. I, uh, I what was that Mel Gibson movie where he had a hand puppet? Was it Lethal Weapon? No, 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 no. 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 It was more recent. I think it was directed by Jodie Foster. I can't remember. Blake, do you know what I'm talking about? The Beaver. Yeah, the Beaver. Oh no, there's I'd... something about that too. That, oh jeez. Right. Anyway, yeah. you should look into it. Um, yeah. So, but when I go home. You know, I stop at the I stop at the I stop at the doorway, and I actually kind of talk about this with people. Is there's certain trigger points that we can use to actually, you know, uh, just stop for a moment and just think about okay, intentionally who who do I want to bring who who do I want to bring at my core to this moment? And and doorways are a fantastic triggering point for people to um, to use. So, anyways, I get home and I live in New York City, and uh, as I before I walk through the threshold, I just stop because so much of us, or so many of us who do work hard. Like I, I love my business. I, I love the the work I get to do. And we can expend a lot of energy throughout the day. And then we go home and our families get left with whatever is left. And and that's not what I want for my kids. I'm super fortunate right now that I've got they're all really young and they all like me right now. So <laughs> a few more years and it could be a different story. But uh that that kind of idea of who I want to show up is someone who shows up a lot more like Mr. Rogers. They don't want, you know, smart, articulate, confident, and decisive Todd showing up. They want playful, fun, get on the floor and roll around with them and give them a right. piggyback. Right? They want that version of who me, and he lives inside of me. Absolutely. That's inside of me, but I'm being very mindful and resetting myself saying, you know, if I can be just a little bit more like Fred Rogers, because I am a hard charging person and mm -hmm. I could maybe have the tendency to, you know, 
um, amp up myself more than my kids ever need. Mm -hmm. But what would Mr. Rogers do? Well, he's always going to get down on one knee and go eye to eye with his kids. So I'm always going to try to embody that and develop those characteristics and be intentional. So when I go through the door, my glasses aren't on. I have a little bracelet that my daughter Molly made for me that's sitting on a little hook right there. And it's, it's the first thing I do is I grab that, I put it on and I snap it because that snapping sound. And I you're, want. that's the talisman to trigger you yeah. into Fred Rogers mode. Yeah, into, yeah, yeah dad mode. Yeah, it's, <laughs> dad just, it's, dad, it's just who it is, it's right. just dad mode. Um, and again, does that mean it happens 100% of the time? I'm not talking about perfection here, but if we can be 10% better because of it. Well, 10% is huge. Huge. I mean, you deal with elite Olympic professional athletes. If you get a 1% incremental gain, that's <laughs> massive. It's massive, yeah. So, um, yeah, when, so, I always, I, when I first became a dad, that was the first person that I went to about who I wanted. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, oh, thank you so much uh -huh. for honoring this idea as well. Right, well, all right. Well, now I gotta go see that movie right away. <laughs> um, I would imagine that you probably spend a lot of time uh, unraveling some uh, bad coaching, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of not so good, perhaps well-intentioned. Now you've not, just, now you've just triggered me. Not oh, so man. good coaches out there. Um, what are the mistakes that these well, in, let's presume they're well-intentioned, you know, yeah. well-intentioned coaches are making? Um, Cause there's, you know, listen, there's athletes listening to this, there's coaches that listen to this. Yeah. Like, what do you see out there that could ease, that you're like, come on guys. Like yeah. if you would just, do it this way instead of this way. Yeah. The results that you're seeking would be much more accessible. Yeah. Well, I think one to go to right away is uh, the idea that to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, you know, well, this is who I am as a coach. And so they only have one way to coach people. And it's going to resonate with about 20% of your, you know, athletes. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a hard coach. That's just who I am, as opposed to being more nuanced in how you approach um, athletes. So that's just one thing. Like case by case, like a, a response would be, well, look, I got a 50, 60 players on the field here. I can't you know, adapt for every single personality trait. Sure, but when you're doing things one-on-one -on -one with them, like you're gonna have a way that you're gonna be coaching the group of people, right? But when you're having and pulling a kid off to the side, being a little bit more nuanced in your approach to that kid, like um, there are some people, like I'm a challenger type. You can challenge me and I'm gonna rise to the occasion. You can call me names and I'm gonna, it doesn't bother me in the least. Um, talking to me softly and like, you know, this doesn't, res doesn't work for me. But for another athlete, just like yelling and screaming at them doesn't work because they might have someone at home who yells and screams at them all the time and it just triggers them. So you, you have know, to have a, a level of emotional intelligence though to figure out what approach is gonna work for what individual. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not, I don't think that's a big ask of people at all in just any walk of life is to have a level of emotional intelligence, right? Um, another one is understand like the level of the people that you're working with right now. Like if, if you're only focused at winning when you're working with eight-year-olds, you're, you're so out of sequence. It's right. not even funny. Like <laughs> this, is a, this is a developmental mode I right laugh, now. but this is an epidemic. Oh, it's it's- I mean, I grew up in Canada where, you know, parents beating on the glass because their kid isn't being uh, played or something right. like that is an epic epidemic up here. Uh -huh. And you got shows down here in the United States that glorify football coaches working with, you know, Pop Warner kids 
you know, making them run sprints constantly because they made a mistake and they lost the game. It's mm-hmm. just like, you know, um, this kind of pop culture mentality to create a great reality show is just, it's ridiculous. Right. Um, it doesn't serve. So that is important. Like if they're in developmental mode, you're there to help foster growth. It's like, again, a tr- intrinsic, intrinsic motivation. If, you, if a great litmus test on whether or not you're a good coach is how many of the kids on your team came back to play the sport next year. Right. If it ain't high, well, that's a fantastic mirror on your ability to get kids excited about that sport that you had mm-hmm. them with mm-hmm. you last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. I will say coaching for some people, good coaches, uh, it's a thankless, it's a, it can be thankless. There's a great, there's a story that's out right now of a, a young lady who was, who won the uh, national championship with the Nebraska Cornhuskers, Cornhuskers, went back to her alma mater in Texas to uh, coach the volleyball team. And uh, at the end of the season, just a few weeks ago, quit, handed a resignation because the parents were being completely ridiculous with just all the politics and the bureaucracy and the, the threats of what they'll do if they don't, if she doesn't start playing her kid more or whatever mm-hmm. the case is. Mm-hmm. So again, it's like most things, it's very complex to try to navigate this world right now. Um, but I think if coaches would spend more time understanding the role that they're supposed to be playing with this age of group that they're with right then, it would probably help them a lot more than just it, it. The idea that winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Well, A, that's such a bastardized quote pulled from someone that there was a lot more context built around it. And they love to just rephrase, or people just like to trot out those things all the time as this, you know, fantastic. Well, that's exactly how successful people become successful. Well, you know, I hung out with Jerry Rice when he was with a bunch of other younger wide receivers when Jerry Rice was retired. And he buried them when he was 45 or 46. Mm -hmm. And these kids are 21 and 22. And he stayed out on the field for another hour and 15 minutes longer than they did doing the work. And internally- So what do you make of that? Oh, just process. He was, he just, he knew that you just couldn't outlast him. Yeah. His process, his focus on the process was just elegant. Um, And that's what made him so special. I mean- when, when you can literally use a protractor device to draw out the routes that he ran in football, he was so exact. Um, it was just inspiring. Yeah. Well, what's really cool about what you're doing is that it's expanding and exploring this final frontier terrain of the mind. Mm-hmm. And I think for a long time, we sort of danced around the importance of the men, the quote unquote like mental yeah. game. And at the highest levels of, of achievement, whether it's in sport or business or what have you, um, you have very talented people who are all working to their utmost capacity. And the differentiator is gonna be what's going on in between the ears. Yeah. And that's mysterious landscape. And it's something that I think we've all understood we need to better master but we're only now really learning the fundamentals Mm -hmm. about how to do that. But it isn't just something to add to your toolbox. In my opinion, it's the whole thing, like the whole 
game that's mm-hmm. going on in your head. Yeah. It's not an afterthought, like here, do your training, and then we'll like talk about like the mental aspect of it. Like the mental aspect has to come first and foremost, because if you don't have that sorted out, yeah. um, it's never gonna work. You'll reach a certain level of proficiency, but you're never gonna be at your absolute potential or peak. Yeah. Um, so I think what you're doing is super important. It's inspiring, whether you're a high-performing athlete, whether you're an executive, or whether you're like a soccer mom who's just trying to better understand uh, what makes you tick and how to build a little bit more fulfillment and purpose into your daily life. So yeah. as we kind of close this down, I think it would be really helpful to share a message for that kind of individual. I mean, listen, most yeah. people who are watching this or listening to this, as much as we all wanna believe we're headed to the Olympics yeah, yeah. or we're gonna, you know, yeah. we're headed towards that IPO or yeah. whatever it is, most of us are just trying to, to live a little bit uh, with a little bit more fulfillment, contentment, purpose, direction, mm-hmm. um, sense of satisfaction, calmness, mindfulness, these things, you know. So to that person out there, how do we begin this process? Like they can't hire you or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a coach isn't in the cards for them, but yeah. what are the tools that this person can start practicing? Well, as a tool, I mean, I'll go back to mindset as a way to direct the the intention and the action for people. And the one thing that I wanted to remind people throughout the book was, even though the way that I had to find this was through something that was traumatic to me, that's not everybody. Everybody didn't, doesn't come from that. Um, and and I want to just remind people in the book is, be playful with this. Like it's the this idea of our creative imagination being something that's truly unique mm-hmm. to us is so powerful and we have to honor that fact. And in it, if you do, you're gonna find a completely new gear that you can go to that isn't about revving the engine faster, but um, just tapping into that you can be playful with this and it's normal. This is not about, you know, you're doing this and it's gonna be like 5% of the people who've used it. No, this is an innate human skill. It's an innate thing that's built into the genius of you know, how we operate and, and roll with it, play with it. Cause you don't know what's waiting for you on the other side of you stepping into it. And what I do know from people who do step into it is that typically what is on the other side of it is maybe 5% more of that heroic version of who you are sitting on the inside. And this isn't about some Pollyanna view on life or anything like that, but I just know I, the impact it's made on so many people. And then the dominoes that get created, because you know we, we oftentimes bottle ourselves in and we define who we are and what we're capable of. But if I can just get someone to do 10% more and they enjoy 10% more, it opens up and expands their comfort zone of what it is that they think that they can do. And from there, I don't know where it leads someone. So right. um, just as an idea and as a tool is start with, if we can all act with a little bit more playfulness, then um, I think it makes all of us at least five or 10% better. Yeah. So put that sock puppet on your hand and start channeling a little Fred Rogers. Why not? We, we need that. I mean, I definitely know that I need that. And look, man, life is yeah, short, right? It is. Let's enjoy ourselves a little bit more. Absolutely. Right? Thank you so much. Uh, You're a champ. Thank you. Powerful, uh, powerful message today. 
perhaps transformative. Really appreciate uh, what you're doing and the positivity and the tools that you're putting out into the world. So everybody, please go pick up this book, The Alter Ego Effect. It comes out February 5th, 5th, right? Yeah. Exciting times, man. Yeah. We're recording this a little bit before that, but I appreciate uh, it. Yeah, it's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of activity around this book, right? Well, we you can't you can't miss the high letter yellow cover on it. So yes, <laughs> that is uh, this is the trend, right? Like bright yellow colors on these books. I hope not. No. I hope mine is the only high letter. Well, one. it definitely but stands yeah. out. Yeah, and um, it's a great book. Great job. Thanks, uh, Rich. I know the heart and soul that you poured into this. So uh, thank you for sharing it with us here Appreciate today. It, if people want to um, learn more about you, toddherman.com. Dot me. me. The guy who got toddherman.com registered it. Like he was like the 39th oh, really? person who read. Yeah, it's crazy. There's so. also like a pretty hardcore, like right-wing talking head personality with your name too. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> what's, so, so don't be confused. Yeah, it's, it, I am not that guy, yeah. but what's awesome is um, I own about the first two pages of Google. So if you did uh-huh. a search for Todd Herman, my website, toddherman.me right. will come up, but yeah, I'm not the right-wing He's not like talking. The, the pundit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but yeah, then, toddherman.me. And of course I'm all over the social media channels like everyone else, but uh, that's my home base is toddherman.me. And what about book events? Are you going to be doing some public stuff where people can shake your hand, get a book signed, or hear you talk? I don't have actually anything uh-huh. planned. I mean, we're talking about doing something maybe at the Barnes and Noble, the largest one, um, which is in Union Square. Union in, Square. In, yeah. in New York. You should City. definitely do that. That's yeah. awesome to do an event there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if people went to the website, we will definitely have it on there. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun. I'm excited cool. to get it out in front of people. Awesome, man. And I'm going to work on my alter ego. Yeah, I'm going to report back to you. I'll help you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think I need it. I'm not conceptualizing it right now. Yeah, I'm going to put some time into it though. All right? Cool. Cool. Peace. Peace. Let's. I thought that was a great podcast. Super helpful, informative, uh, informational, packed with all kinds of nuggets and teachable moments. Really hope you enjoyed it as well. Please do me a favor and let Todd know what you thought of today's conversation by hitting him up on Twitter and Instagram at Todd underscore Herman. Don't forget to check out his book, pick it up, The Alter Ego Effect. And please check out the show notes on the episode page on my website to take your experience of Todd in this conversation beyond the earbuds. Speaking of setting and achieving goals, if you're trying to dial up your nutritional game, Come on, you guys, you got to check out our meal planner. Go to meals.richroll.com. You will find everything you need to make your diet goals stick. Thousands of plant-based recipes, totally customized based on your personal preferences, unlimited grocery lists, grocery delivery in most metropolitan areas. We have amazing customer support from a team of experienced health and diet coaches on the ready seven days a week. And it's all available to you for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. It's actually an incredible bargain and deal. So for more, to learn more, sign up, go to richroll.com and click on the meal planner on the top menu, or just go to meals.richroll.com. For even more goal setting and achieving, we got to get DK on track, my man, David Kahn. He's going to come back soon and update us. He's got some goals in mind to get him sorted for 2019. I appreciate all of the tweets and all of the social media messages that you guys were sending. It's been really motivational and inspirational for him. I talked to him the other day and he's excited to come back. 
and share where he's at with all of this with us soon. So you have that to look forward to. In the meantime, if you have an idea for David Kahn for his 2019 goals, you can share that on Instagram or Twitter with the hashtag DKGoals. If you would like to support the work that we do here on the podcast, there are a couple ways to do just that. Just tell your friends about your favorite episode when you're out to dinner or out to drinks. Share the show on social media. Take a screen grab and you know put it on Instagram or wherever. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. We're now on Spotify now, really trying to build the audience there. So that's a great place to listen, especially if you're on Android. Uh, we're also putting all the shows up on YouTube. We're filming the podcast, for those of you who might not know. And of course, Google Podcasts. Uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can support the show on Patreon at ritual.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiola, again, congratulations for completing your 200th episode. I look forward to 200 plus more with you. Appreciate it. You are my audio engineer, production, show notes, interstitial music, everything behind the scenes. Thank you, Jason. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for video and editing. Jessica Miranda for graphics. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music, as always, by Anna Lemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here next week with a great episode with Australian animal activist, James Aspie. It's a really good one. I've been sitting on that one for a very long time. We did that interview uh, way back, oh my God, so long ago. So very excited to finally share that one with you guys. Until then, may you explore your inner self. May you discover your secret identity. Don't tell anyone and start working on that alter ego to unlock true potential. All right, peace. Plants. Namaste. Thank you.